We all use projections, but what are we doing wrong when we use projections? I'll ask ATC Projections Meister Ariel Cohen about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 23rd. It's show number three of the 2024 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have two feature expert interviews. First, with Ariel Cohen from the ATC Projection and Valuation Systems and Fangraphs. We'll discuss his drafts so far this year, how he manages the ATC Projection System, and generating dollar values for auction-style drafts. And of course, he'll have boons and banes for 2024. And then later, our second feature expert interview with Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan and I will talk about his labor mix draft this week and speculating about 2025's ADP risers and recency bias rebounds for 2024. We'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, looking at American League hitters Nolan Chanuel and Tyler O'Neill, the Houston rotation and Oakland bullpen, then we'll head to the National League with hitter views including Whit Merrifield, Sal Fralick, and Ella Hurris Montero, and National League pitchers Jeff Hoffman and Nick Lodolo. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the analyst at BaseballHQ.com, the best and newest fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at spring training prospects to watch. And in the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Yankees catcher Austin Wells. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Ariel Cohen and Ryan Bloomfield? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's our first feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from the ATC Projection Valuation Systems, Fangraphs, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and really glad to be back, Patrick. It's always fun to have you on the show. Uh, let's get started with uh, your leagues. How many leagues have you drafted so far this year, Ariel, and how many more do you intend to draft? So I did an NFBC online auction so far. Uh, I'm going to be doing another one of those somewhere in March. And then I've got Labor, Tout, TGFBI, Raz Slam. I do uh, a home league and then a sort of expert home league uh, called GDD. So eight leagues in total this year. Uh, a little bit more than I've done last year, but not the most I've ever done. And you're not, you don't do the NFBC money games? Uh, well, the uh, I I used to do the NFBC auction, the uh, the high stakes one when it was in New York. But uh, this year, the NFBC decided that they're no longer going to do them live in New York. So I'm just going to do the online ones, which is uh, I've done one already and I'm going to do one more in March. How did it go, the uh, auction that you did uh, just recently? I think pretty well. Uh, I noticed that uh, my style of bidding uh, was the opposite of what went on in the room. Everyone was going crazy prices over and get this guy, get this guy. Uh, I, I stayed true to my form and I played the middle. So I thought I did a pretty good job. Yeah, we've uh, 
seen you at uh, First Pitch Arizona talking about auction strategy, and it's it's really brilliant stuff. And and anybody who learns about it or even thinks about it probably stand to improve their auction uh, performance. So whether in your own drafts or if you're following the coverage in the media of drafts, and heaven knows there's enough of that these days, uh, what trends or situations have you seen that have interested you? A couple points to make. Uh, first of all, closers this year. I think we've gone back to a little bit more stability. Now, we know that we do have matchup play and there are some fluid situations. But in general, I can tell you who the closer is or who at least the first guy to get the crack is on almost every single team in the majors or at least most of the teams that matter anyways. Uh, and I think in general, closers have been pushed down in drafts a bit. Although the uh, labor draft, the mixed labor that was just took place this past Tuesday, the closers went really flying off the board. But that's not what I've seen so far uh, in the draft market. I also have noticed that speed isn't as uh, pushed up as it should as it shouldn't be. Speed is not as valuable as it was just a couple years ago uh, with with all the steals from last year, and that should continue going into this year. You don't need to push up speed beyond what your values tell you. I think it's still pushed up a little too much, so it might be a place where you can profit by getting some later speed or even waiting to the waiver wire. There are speedsters available on the waiver wire for you. So that's another thing. And uh, outfielders in general, I think the uh, the outfield player pool is kind of thin this year and does bottom out, especially in the five outfielder leagues. Uh, I think you need to get some options earlier than you think this year because you don't want to be getting the bottom of the pool. And I'll be talking with Ryan Bloomfield about that mixed labor uh, online draft a little later on in this show. And uh, certainly some interesting things went on there, including Derek Van Riper taking two starters back to back to start his draft to Spencer Strider and Corbin Burns, which I think really, I'm going to ask Ryan about this, but I think it seemed to really change the whole dynamic of that draft as far as pushing up starters. But what have you seen so far this year as far as starting pitching goes? Well, a word about Derek Van Riper's draft. He went really, really risky in general with, uh, with it. Royce Lewis. He's got Cody Bellinger in sign yet. He's got Pete Fairbanks as a closer. Jackson Churio's taking a chance on. So he went a little bit more risky than I've seen him do. Uh, but as far as pitching goes, well, we know the NFBC has been known to crazy push-up pitchers. Uh, and we're not up to the main event yet, so I do expect whatever the ADP market is to go even further pitchers, especially in the NFBC. But I, I think that we've gone back a little bit, a little bit uh, in terms of the pushing up pitchers. Now we're not going all the way back to eight, nine years ago, where if you took a pitcher in the first three rounds, you know, you're crazy. I, I remember spending $20 on Clayton Kershaw. And this was after he won the Cy Young award and everyone's like, Whoa, $20 on a pitcher. We're not going back to those days. It's commonplace to have, Plenty of pitchers go above $20, uh, but we're not going to see the ridiculous uh, prices we've seen in the past. Um, Strider, Cole, those are going to be the big ones. Otherwise, you're going to see you know, a couple of second round, a couple of third rounders. Uh, it's gotten a little bit more ingrained that pitchers do belong earlier, but I don't think it's going to be crazy. But we'll see what the, we'll see what the uh, main event holds. Uh, you never know. Just to see what would happen the other day, I, I made an Excel chart. I rounded all the uh, dollar values of all the starting pitchers to no decimal points 
And then I just ran the chart of the of all the starting pitchers, and you can see tiers forming. There's this 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 two man tier at the start, as you mentioned with Strider and Cole. Then there's this big huge drop off. But then in that next tier, you've got a whole bunch of guys. And I thought when I saw that, I don't think I have to be in a big hurry to get my first starting pitcher, considering how many guys there are available in that sort of third, fourth, fifth round area. And I ended up in the one draft I've done so far, I waited and I got the last guy. I thought, I'm going to wait till I get the last guy in that big clump of guys who are available. And it turned out to be Luis Castillo, which is not bad. You know, it's a, it's a, a salvageable or it's a, a, a manageable kind of guy to start your rotation with. And, and I, I think that there's a lot of depth in that sort of not Garrett Cole, not Spencer Strider tier of starting pitchers. Yeah, uh, besides those two super elite ones, if you calculate the auction dollars by ATC, the difference between the number three and, say, the number 19 pitcher is $7. It's really, really fluid. If you miss out on number three, seven, ten, and you get a pair of 15 and the number 15 and 16 starting pitchers, you're not really all that far behind. And that's why, especially if you're doing drafts, it's not about ranking. If I said three versus 19, you'd say, wow, that's a big difference. But when you put auction dollars yes. to the player and to the values, you see just how tight something is or just how disparate. So the pitcher is really fluid there. You know, I've noticed in the outfield, for example, the outfield – uh, you've got obviously Ronald Acuna, who's in just a tier of his own. Right. But the, then you have a bunch of outfielders. There's a $35, a $35, a $33. Not much difference between number two outfielder and number nine. And then huge gap from nine to, let's say, 13. Uh, that's a $10 gap. So it really pays to look at the auction dollar value, even if you're doing a snake draft, to see just how sensitive those tiers are. Rankings do not give you the right amount of information. I agree entirely. And uh, every draft I go into, the first thing I do is, is stack rank them by dollar value. And I do use decimals just to break the ties. But I think the point of it is is to try to identify these tiers, first of all, of players in general, and then to evaluate the tiers position by position because it allows you to see right away, if you, especially if you do it as a, as a graph or as a chart, that there are definitely clumps of value in certain areas and you can be a little more relaxed about getting players at certain positions in those clumps as contrasted with there are some positions where there are big fall-offs and small tiers, and then you really want to be a bit more aggressive, I think, in getting after those guys. Third baseman this year, I think, is a, a, an instance of that. First base to an extent uh, as well. Uh, catchers are always a problem, but I'll, I think catchers have actually been a little easier this year. Oh, catchers, this is one of the best catcher pools we've seen. Um, I think that uh, anybody from the fourth catcher up to the 12th, 13th catcher, has a lot of promise and should return a nice amount. Uh, it's it's a year that uh, even if you wait on catching, you can still get a very decent one, even if it's a number two catcher uh, that could be your number one. So, yeah, catching is very, very plentiful this year. That, that's the nice thing, uh, Patrick, about fantasy baseball, that we're doing a similar exercise. Our skills in assessing the player pool are the same, but you're, every year it's a different instance, and how you evaluate what to do that's the game each year. You have to see what the player pool is and then plan how you're going to maximize your value. 
You said on your Beat the Shift podcast recently that you prefer to draft from the middle of snake drafts rather than at either end at the wheels. And you attributed that preference to being what you called uh, yourself a value drafter. How does your approach, the value drafting approach, affect why you want to draft in the middle rather than the end? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of reasons why you should want to draft in the middle. And the the overall premise is that I think that I can get more bargains in the middle. I think I can extract more value. And there's a couple of things to say. First of all, um, runs. When you're drafting at the end, you have a higher chance of being excluded from a run. I mean, if you're picking first and you're in the fifth round and you don't pick a closer, you can have seven, nine, ten closers rattled off and miss out on an entire tier. And that's sort of a gameplay, game theory thing. So uh, if you're in the middle, you have less of a chance. Not that you can't be excluded, but you have a far less chance of being excluded from any run. There's also information asymmetry. When you pick in the middle, it comes to you, you make a decision, and then the next decision you make, the next pick you get, is uh, at most one round, right? Half a round to go to the end, half a round to go back. When you're at the end, you have to make two decisions, right? You've got to double up in your decision-making, and it only comes to you every almost two rounds. you got to wait 30 picks if you're at the very end, and then you got to make two two picks. So there's a little bit of an information assumption. You get more information as to what to do in the middle. And then there's the idea of reach. If you're in the middle and you like a player a little bit above the ADP, uh, you see it's a value there. You say, all right, I got to reach. But you're not reaching all that much because you're only reaching a half a round extra, maybe a a three quarters of a round. If you're picking at the end and you like a player, you might have to reach almost two rounds worth to get the next one because, I don't know, is he going to last two rounds? So you're having to reach more for your picks. Add that up over the course of the entire draft, and you're losing a little bit of value here, a little bit of value by reaching a little bit more, reaching a little bit more. It comes all to be. And, you know, so I understand if you're picking number two, great, you get Julio Rodriguez, and maybe that's the best way to play the first round. But you have to consider the fourth round and the sixth round and the twelfth round and the little bits of value you're getting or you're losing over the entire draft. Middle is the far better in terms of the value proposition, in my opinion. And something that's kind of an, uh, a corollary of what you're saying, Ariel, is when you're at drafting at the ends, I think there's a higher level of uncertainty that's based on that asymmetry of information. You just don't know. You have to be much more willing to guess at what's going to happen over the next 30 picks than if you're in the middle and you only have to try to figure out based on what the other teams have and what the other teams need and and what you know about them as drafters and those kinds of things and runs, as you said before. There's a lot more certainty if you're in the middle because of the uh, oh, because yeah. of the value of the information that you have. And uncertainty is your enemy in any kind of these decision-making exercises. <laughs> You're talking to an actuary here, so if you're going to say, do you want the more certain position or the more uncertain, well, of course, I'm going to take the more certain position. I mean, look, there are advantages of picking at the ends. In terms of balancing your categories, you can be a little bit more in control of that because I get two picks, I need homers, and say, okay, I'll fix it right now. So there are advantages, but I like the value proposition way more than the category balance. Remember, uh, if if you finish second to first in homers, and second to last in stolen bases, well, 
I mean, it, it, it's going to be the same if you finish middle, middle, right? The category balance to me is less important than the value proposition as long as you end up not in last place. Yeah, that's well said. In my Kentucky Derby bids so far this season in the drafts that I've put in for, um, I started with one because I thought if I if I come first out of the hat, I want Ronald Acuna because it's a it's like getting two players for the price of one, really. But after that, it was eight, seven, nine, six, ten, like that, trying to trying to stay in the middle, and. Uh, Two drafts and both both drafting from the number eight position, and I really liked the first one how my team turned out. So I think that's uh, a pretty good way to go. Uh, before we move on to projections, Ariel, I understand uh, you're heading to Texas, but not for baseball. What is the attraction in Lone Star Country for you? Oh well, actually, I do plan on attending a baseball game. I am going to see the Texas Rangers. I'm also going to see the Dallas Stars, so we'll make it a little bit of a sports trip as well. But the impetus for the trip is the total solar eclipse of 2024. Um, if you have never seen a total solar eclipse, you should. It's something that I believe that people should see once once in a lifetime, and you might only see it once in a lifetime or never. Uh, I did see one in 2017. I traveled to Nashville, Tennessee as part of my summer vacation just to be in the uh, in the line of the total the eclipse path, and it was amazing. I mean, if it, it, you'll never see something in the sky as weird as it. it. It's like a big glowing green thing. It looks like a UFO. It's so unnatural looking. You're like, whoa. And uh, it gets dark. It's like a sunset all around you, not just from the uh, not just from the uh, west, but in the east as well. It, it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, you even see shadows. Like if you go next to a tree, uh, uh, or you look under a tree in a, during a solar eclipse, and you see, you know, the little sparkles of light. Each little bit of light. Looks like a solar eclipse. It, it has the bite out of it coming from the moon, and you see little bits of of the uh, of, of the solar eclipse all over. It's just incredible thing to to see and to be around. And so, um, where should I go to see it? Well, the you want to go where there's the least amount of cloud cover, and in the month of April, that would be Dallas, so or somewhere around Texas. So. That's my trip. I'm a little bit of an astronomy guy as well, and uh, I urge you, if you are in the area, check it out. And if you're not, you should try it. The next total solar eclipse in North America won't be for about 20 more years after that. I've actually seen two total solar eclipses. Uh, I remember one when I was just a kid, and of course our parents were freaking out about, you know, don't look at the sun directly, which you shouldn't. I, sh I should point out there are there are methods that you can use to look at the eclipse, whether you look at it on, through a pinhole camera type thing or use proper vision protection. But it is really something to see. It's it's quite amazing. Uh, have you ever gone, uh, made a deliberate attempt to go see the Perseid meteor showers or the Leonid meteor showers? Yeah, so uh, especially when I was up in camp when I was younger, uh, on those days, if there was no full moon, yeah, I would go to a nice clearing. We would sit there, and I wasn't going to stay up until 3 a.m. I'm not that crazy, but yeah, we made it a point to stay up to midnight and just sit back. And yeah, I, I, I've been able to see a couple of them. I, I don't think I've gotten to see like the one in a minute type thing, but yeah, you, you wait a good 20 minutes, and maybe I saw four or five uh, every so often. Really nice. I this astronomy stuff is great. You should really look up and see it when you get a chance. 
Uh, I studied astronomy in uh, university, just an introductory course, but uh, I found it fascinating. And the uh, other, um, I I don't know if you call it an astronomical phenomenon, but I think it is, is the Northern Lights. Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? Uh, That I've never seen, but I I heard it's gorgeous. And by the way, uh, do a correction, though. Um, During the solar eclipse, you can look directly at it, and you should. You don't need a uh, filter or you don't need a pinhole wheel to see the sun when it's completely blocked. I think people uh, tell people don't look at it when there's a sliver. Even if a sliver of the sun is out, you, you might think, oh, it's okay, it's just a little bit. That will hurt your eyes, but during the solar eclipse, oh, absolutely directly look right at it. Oh, there you go. Good good news. Um, I've seen the solar, the uh, northern lights a couple of times, and it is quite something. And the, the first time I saw them was completely by accident. I was driving north in uh, the province of Saskatchewan. There was, there's no street lights or anything like that on these country roads that I was driving up. And I saw, oh, look at that, what, up in the air. There was like these green shimmering curtains of, of like pastel light. And all of Amazing. a sudden it struck me, oh my gosh, that's the uh, Aurora Borealis. And I've never seen them before, and I've seen them once since. So it, it's really quite something to see. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and the Beat the Shift podcast and the ATC projections. And Ariel, I wouldn't mind going on and talking about your projection system. How, how, did, how did you get started doing it? When did you get started doing ATC? Well, how and why? Well, I wanted to win my own fantasy baseball league, of course. That's how everything gets started. Uh, ATC, I made it uh, starting roughly around 2011. And, hey, I want to dominate my league. Let's put some projections together. And I thought, hey, maybe we should aggregate some projections. I've gotten better over the years on how I aggregate, of course. But that that was the uh, impetus uh, way back then. And uh, I won my home league the next I don't know, two, three years in a row, and I think I've cashed in it, I don't know, seven out of the ten years following. So really, really good success using ATC. You said you started in 2011. What are the biggest improvements you've made over the years to enhance the system? So the methodology that I use really hasn't changed all that much since uh, the second or third year. I have expanded to more statistics over the years and more features. Uh, I've incorporated, you know, models for some lesser lesser statistics, not just the uh, scoring categories. Um, but we've gotten some more features over the years. On fan graphs now, if you go on it, you'll actually see war. We get ATC war, which is amazing. Uh, starting last year, we have uh, ATC projected standings. If you go on fan graphs at any point during the year, preseason or during the season, it, you can go on and see what the projected uh, sim- simulated standings are going to be for the year and the probability of your teams, your favorite teams, making the playoffs, winning the division, winning the World Series. So that's kind of cool. ATC now runs rest of season. So during the middle of the year, you can actually see what ATC will say well, we'll be for the rest of the season. That's a big one. And we have the ATC volatility metrics, InterSD, InterSK, IntraSD, which gives you a flavor for what ATC is. It's not just, oh, he's a $5 player, but what is the parameter risk that's associated with it? Is there a skew in projections? Is there one outlier or projections roughly balanced around ATC? And uh, a little bit about uh, the dimension of players with the IntraSD. I'm wondering, 
How do you think the projections can or will be further sharpened as we continue down this path? And I particularly am interested in your thoughts on uh, artificial intelligence or other advances in computing technology. So in general, projections in general, uh, in terms of advancements, um, you know, like anything, there's always going to be some better metrics and better models to use. Uh, You know, Eno Saris came out with Stuff Plus. I don't know how much that's incorporated in uh, uh, projections right now. Probably isn't, actually. Uh, You're going to see stuff like that, stuff like Stuff Plus being incorporated to models much sooner, um, you know, once they tailor how it actually uh, correlates to the statistics. StatCast. You're first starting to see StatCast come. I know uh, Derek Cardi's The Bat X does use StatCast, so you're seeing that be incorporated. I mean, just think a couple of years ago, Pitcher Velocity was first incorporated. I know Steamer was one of the first ones to do that, and now it's in virtually every single model. So you're going to see some better statistics, better uh, use of data being incorporated once we find that, oh, actually, it's very predictive. You'll see more and more of that. I think you'll also see some stats, particularly by pitchers, being more componentized. So, for example, uh, what about a stat for a pitcher, strikeouts per pitch, per, hey, he throws the fastball. What are your statistics per the curveball, per the slider, the sweeper? And what's nice about that is that it's adaptive to changes in your pitch mix. I mean, if you look at a pitcher who changed their pitch mix late in the year last year, you're going to see, if you look at projections, they're only going to incorporate stuff from three years ago, two years ago, even half of last year that doesn't show what his skill level is using the the new improved pitch mix if he had better success. But if you had the pitch values and what uh, what the, uh, the skills of player are per pitch, and then, oh, the model just have to adjust for the current pitch change, you'll be able to see more adaptive and more reactive pitching model. So I think that is one thing that is going to come. But you'll have to remember that um, there is a limit to how good a projection system can get. Remember, there's always process risk. There's always sample size. We know there's uncertainty. We know there's going to be variance from start to start. So there is a limit. There is a limit to how much better you can get. But, you know, just like I said, well, the examples, we will incrementally get better. Ed, what do you think of AI as a tool? So AI, of course, has to, you have to have somebody programming the AI to do that, right? Uh, You have to have the intelligence in order to show it. And AI, it's more also machine learning. I think machine learning is a great adaptive tool that, you know, the programming in the past was, you know, how do you know what a square is? Well, it has to have four sides. It has to have equal angles. And you had to give a direct description for uh, for a computer to identify what something is. If it's true, if it's false, yes or no. In machine learning and AI, you don't actually tell it rules. You give them similar cases. You say, take a look at this. It's a square. Take a look at this picture. It's not a square. And the more and more you feed it, the more and more it encounters something else. It just has to say, all right, what is it similar to? Which picture is it similar to? Which is sort of what, what humans do. Like when you see an object, how do you know it's a square? It's because you've seen something similar like that. Now, I'm using the term square, but I could use, you know, a dog. How do you know that something (laughs) looks like a dog? Well, you've seen a picture that looks like a dog. You've seen, you know, it's got the ears and uh, the face and the eyes. So the more and more you, you train computers to adapt similarity scores and to think like that, 
the the better it is and and the more flexible it will be uh that i can see happening where maybe uh use it to uh, uh maybe there are players similar to others uh maybe there are path trajectories oh this guy is similar oh look at his uh look at his swing maybe uh ai will adapt and analyze how people swing how people throw stance the the mechanics and maybe they'll translate that and say oh well here's other pitchers in the past who have had similar mechanics here's their trajectory so i can see it happening i don't think we're quite there yet because again it's a lot of human programming that goes into it and if you really want to mess up the ai ask it to identify a square dog <laughs> that'll mess up <laughs> so to what extent, Ariel, if at all, do you apply personal observations or analysis to adjust the algorithmic outputs from the ATC system? Well, in general, you try not to do too much, but the I can tell you the vast majority of anything that I change manually is going to be in playing time. Of course, there's errors that happen. Uh, you have to comb through it errors pop up all the time, or whether it's a data mismatch or just project a certain projection system just has it wrong. Uh, but uh, playing time, uh, certainly there's some news that's older that, uh, or, or newer that the projections just haven't incorporated yet so that have to be adjusted, or you might have a better idea of what's going on. Um, so I do make some manual changes for things that I think are out of whack. And I don't just put in and say, okay, Player X is going to have 570 plate appearances. I'll never put in such a number, but I do have ways to credibly adjust when I think there's something off that uh, we do have to tilt it a little bit down or a little bit up mathematically. Uh, but the, the, the short answer is yes, and it's mostly about the playing time. I know you've said on your podcast and in your writing that the fantasy manager should not just take these projections, any projections, yours or others, as gospel and that they're kind, they kind of should be used as a starting point for your own thinking about the players and ranking the players and sort of sussing out the value of players in your context and all these kind of things. But what kind of errors do fantasy managers make when they're using projections? Well, I think that when you think that you're smarter than the projections on the whole, especially with the rate stats, that's where you get into trouble. Certainly, if a player here and there, you think that, oh, I think he's going to be a lot more in power. Oh, I think he's going to run a lot more. I understand that. But in the long run, you're not going to beat you're, – you're not smarter than than the computer in, in assessing it. You, you don't detect regression better than the projections do. So if you're making too many edits, that's pro that's a problem. If you are making look, you have to understand what projections are about and, and what projections have in them and don't have in them. Projections don't detect new things. If a player changed his uh swing, uh that's something else. If a player and his manager discuss we're gonna run more, well projections don't detect that. So as long as you stick your edits to uh, soft information that you know discernibly is not in projections, you'd be okay. But if you're going to have the eye test and say, you know, this guy, I think he's built up some muscle. I think he can hit more homers. You're going to get into trouble doing that. For every 10 corrections that you make, six could be wrong. Only four will be right. In the long run, you're better off not adjusting unless you have a good reason to. You also do auction dollar valuations based on your ATC projections. 
How do you derive dollar values from the projections? Um, so, you know, there are some basic methods that uh, people use, the SGP formulas, the Z-scores. You know, I'll, I'll get a little bit actuarial right now with, with my philosophy on this. Why not? I'll, I'll oversimplify a lot of things. But, you know, when, when I'm looking at um, my company's portfolio and uh, let's say we insure a bunch of commercial buildings and let's say we're writing a bunch of $5 million policies, question is, what should we charge, right? So you have to know, well, you know, there's going to be some profit margin built in, but what is the loss potential for fires for commercial buildings in a $5 million policy? Then there's two ways to do it. There's the experience method where you take a look at your company's past history over the last, I don't know, 10 years, how many claims were they, where they were, what they were, maybe adjust a bit for inflation, and divide by 10 years, and that's your average losses. Experience, like what actually happened. Then there's the exposure method where you say, well, uh, I don't know what it is, but let's take a look at the industry data. You match up your risks as best you can in its construction, its uh, how close is it to a firehouse, uh, number of stories, property values. And you look up industry data and you say, all right, well, let's take a look at that. You add some profit margin and that's what you charge. And the question is, which which is better, experience or exposure rating? Well, the answer is it depends. If you're company has written the same type of risks for 10 years and you've got a lot of data, of course, you should use your own company's experience. But if it's a new product, if it's new or, you know, it's changed, your business has changed a lot in the last couple of years. Well, you want to be a little more flexible. You want to use the exposure rating. SGPs function like the experience method. If you have your own history of your league for the last 10 years and managers operate in the same manner and the baseball environment hasn't changed all that much sgps are the way to go because it really tracks how much in the standings you have to gain by each of the category if you don't have a stable league if you're in a new league or but i think the baseball environment is changing a lot you do want to use the z-score method which is more adaptive to the next year's uh player pool so I tend to use the Z-score method a lot more because it's way more flexible. But I will say that if I am in a league that is stable, I will look at the SGPs and I'll tilt the Z-score methodology, which, again, it's flexible. So you can you can value players in the same mathematical way as SGP. But I'll use more of the factors for SGP because of the stability. Uh, it's a very long-winded answer there, uh, but again, I recommend to anybody who's doing this to use Z-scores in general, unless you have a super stable league uh, and environment, in which case the SGP method is the proper way to go. And this may be a, an odd question because people who know what Z-scores are know what they are and people who don't, don't. But uh, can you briefly explain what the Z-score method is? Yeah, the Z-score method takes the player pool, the, the active player pool. So, you know, I'm drafting the, uh, the you know, your, your 14 hitters and nine pitchers and over, you know, how many teams you have. And per statistic, there's going to be an average score. Maybe it's, you know, 70 RBIs and maybe it's uh, 20 home runs or whatever it is. And then there's not just an average for the player pool, there's a standard deviation. You know, how dispersed is that player pool? And so values correlate to how 
far away in terms of number of standard deviations you are to the middle. You do that per category. It's a way of relating the categories in Roto. And you say, all right, well, in, in this category, I'm plus one. In this category, I'm minus 0.5. And you get a total Z-score compilation for the five categories. You adjust that to your target dollars. If there's $260 in your auction values per you know times 15 teams, whatever that is, and you disperse all of those uh, Z-scores into those dollars. That's the general method. One thing I did leave out, though, that I do that I think is important, um, I also do risk adjustment. So pricing, you know, every player is not the same. There are some players that might have more uncertainty because projections don't agree, or maybe there's health risks or binary risks. Hey, they're either hurt or they're not. So I will use... Uh, some of the ATC risk metrics to adjust, to risk adjust some of the pricing. And, you know, I'll get either an addition of $3 more or, you know, one to $3 or one to $3 less of what I think a player should be purchased at to incorporate some of the risk associated with it as well. And that's something I think a lot of owners do uh, anyway. The Fangraphs site has an auction calculator that users can use to, uh, apply a dollar value to ATC projections or other projections that are available on the site. But do those dollar values necessarily match up with the dollar values you create uh, on your own? Uh, no, they're not going to be exact. Uh, Fangraphs uses a straight Z-score method. So if I didn't make any risk adjustments and if I didn't make uh, any SGP tilts that I do, it would be fairly similar within a dollar or two or so. Uh, but, you know, I, I with my adjustments, it is going to differ. And, and that's good because I do want to be different from the market. Do you make your auction values available anywhere? Uh, I don't right now. I haven't in the past. <laughs> maybe I should. Um, maybe I need to write a uh, a risk-adjusted pricing article, which uh, I, I has been on my plan to do for a while. Uh, but, hey, listen, I have to have some stuff to write next year that uh, that is super as well. Uh, once I get a, 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 a moment to think and to write it and to really pen it well, I'll probably do that, and I'll probably incorporate some of my pricing along with it. I mentioned earlier you gave a terrific presentation at First Pitch Arizona this year about auction strategy. What were some of the key points that you made in that uh, auction strategy presentation? So uh, a lot of things to say, uh, but, you know, auctions are a, a blend of art and science, I think. The general strategy for an auction is that you need to acquire players at bargains. If you have a $260 auction budget and you acquire $260 of player values, you're not going to have a good team. You're going to have an average team. And if you buy a player for $15 who's worth 15 and a player who's 20, you buy a 20 and a player who's two, you buy a two. Well, you're going to end up having an average team. So you have to look for the bargains. Uh, be patient. If a player goes $5 over your values, well, it's a zero-sum game. There's going to be another player that will go $5 under your value, so you have to make use of that. I talk in the presentation about taking auction temperature, that when you're in a cold section, when players are going at bargains, you want to buy as many players as you can. And if you're in a hot section, you want to buy few players, but make sure you pay a smaller relative market premium. You know, auctions are not static numbers. How much is this guy worth? Well, he's worth 15. It's not about the raw dollars. It's about comparison to the market. If third basemen are being valued $4 over by everybody, well, if you're paying only $2 over, 
Well, that's a relative market market uh, discount that you're you're paying. You're only paying two over when everyone else is going four over. You're getting a nice relative market price. So it's about relative pricing. And the other point I make is nominations really matter. You can single-handedly change the economics of an auction by knowing the right way to to uh, to nominate people. And of course, I gave plenty of examples of how and why. And of course, the most important rule is to have fun in your auction. I mean, we're we're doing this for fun, so uh, you should make it make it a great day. I think we've discussed this before, either on a pod or in person, Ariel. But one criticism of some auction planning like this is that it attributes to the valuations themselves a degree of precision that really is not possible. How do you respond to that critique about tying into a projection that by its nature is not precise? So so I have the utmost respect for for those who say that projections are imprecise and so you can't really go by it because it's not precise and i res- i listen I, I respect i respect all the guys who say that i understand why they say that uh there's so much uncertainty in projections you can't go by that and in auctions well you have to go by what's in the room you have to take what the room gives you so you really can't come in with a hard number and respectfully very respectfully i really disagree with that first of all you <laughs> You, you're going to buy a player at a specific price. So you got to have a plan and knowing what number is the right number is worth something, right? You can't just say it doesn't matter. It, it does matter. Um, you know, if I went to work and saying, well, I can't insure hurricanes or earthquakes because there's so much uncertainty about hurricanes and we don't know how the market's pricing. Well, that's not how business works. There is a price. We we have methods and models, and over the long run, we can show you why it works or why it doesn't work. And there is uncertainty. You have to know how to incorporate the uncertainty, or at least you have to make an attempt. You can't always know how to price every single uncertain thing. You don't know about all the uncertainties there are, but there is a portion of the uncertainty that you can control and that you can price for. So I I really disagree with the tenant that you can't have uh, you can't look at projections for values and you can't be precise you can be precise you just have to know that there's going to be an error bar in it right um and maybe we're both saying the same thing but i think you do have to have a plan and you know as far as the market goes oh we don't have a market real price well you have to understand how markets behave and you have to understand market economics just as i said with before with you know you're paying two dollars instead of four dollars um I didn't go by the exact dollar projection. I went by my projection for the position and I knew what the market premium I wanted it to pay was. And that's what my number is. I didn't come in with the exact number of what I was going to pay prior. I came in with my value relative values by position. And then I said, I'm going to understand the market when I get here and make a judgment. At the end of the day, you have to bid on a number. So you should have a method. And it, it by the way, it's, it's easier for me. It's better for me to say, okay, I know what number I'm going to bid. You've got a plan. I think it's harder for people to say, well, see what you can do. Try. It's uncertain. So get who you want. I, I think the better method is to come with a better plan. I agree. And m- my critique of the critique has always been, if you're talking about any individual player that's being uh, auctioned during the uh, auction part of the draft, then you're right. It is impossible to be that precise. But in the aggregate, if you have this set of projections, and unless you just 
made the projections by rolling dice or consulting a Ouija board or a, a tarot deck or something like that. If you assume that there's been some reasonable method applied to the generation of the values, then they're going to be close enough that they give you the, the framework to be disciplined about, well, as you said, the framework to pursue what you're trying to pursue without going overboard on one level or another. I think that's really important, and I think that's really valuable for people to understand about auctions. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs, the Beat the Shift podcast, and ATC Projections. And Ariel, on Beat the Shift this week, you discussed with Paul Sporer, going to be on HQ Radio on March 22nd, by the way, how fantasy managers should be looking at pitchers coming into Major League Baseball from other countries. And my guess, based on my one draft and looking at other drafts, is that these new pitchers are going earlier than I'm comfortable taking them. What were the highlights of the discussion when you and Ruvain Guy, your partner, talked about foreign pitchers with Paul Sporer? Yeah, well, you talk about uncertainty. <laughs> I mean, projections are are so different from one another. So one of the nice things about ATC, as I mentioned earlier, that I can I can see for which players projections are stable. That you know, we pretty they will pretty much agree on what a player value is. And sometimes projections really totally disagree on the value of a player. They're all over the place, and there's no better place to really talk about it than foreign pitchers. Um, InterSD is the statistic that I use. Uh, Yamamoto's uh, InterSD, 7.6. You usually want something like a 2 or 3. Uh, you're getting double or triple the volatility you want in terms of parameter risk. Shota Imanaga, uh, 6.5% InterSD. I mean, we're talking about Yamamoto. We have ERAs from projection systems ranging from 3 up to 4.5. The whip from like 0.97 all the way up to 1.3. So, uh, it him in Naga, there are some projection systems say that he is the best thing since sliced bread. And, uh, if you look at like Derek Cardi, the bat, it'll actually suggest that the Cubs should have signed Ariel Cohen to pitch instead of, uh, Imanaga. So, uh, it, it is a source of complete uncertainty. And, you know, what I have learned in the past is that when pitchers do have, or hitters also have such a variable, uh, projection such an interesting a wide general a wide breadth of projections generally the atc value is too high so if atc projects that he's a 20 dollar player um more likely on average that player tends to be something like 17 or 18 so you can almost reduce the price on that now you compare it to the market whatever atc is telling you even before you you take it down a couple notches the market is way 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 higher on like if you're taking if you're taking Yamamoto in the third round, I mean it, the projections are telling you that is a terrible terrible bet. And what kind of upside do you expect to get from Yamamoto? Do you think he's going to be Garrett Cole, Spencer Strider? Maybe, maybe. But what's the percentage chance that's going to happen? I don't know. And what kind of innings are you going to get from Yamamoto? I mean, is he used to all those innings? Are the Dodgers going to stop pitching him a little bit just so he'll be uh, healthy and, and rested for the playoffs? Um, I don't trust the innings that he's going to get full innings, uh, Yamamoto. And I can't take a pitcher in the third round unless I think he's going to be going for 32 starts. So our highlights are basically saying to stay away from these very expensive 
buys. Can you take a, a gamble on a foreign pitcher lower down? Absolutely, but your your cost outlay is low. But when you have to spend considerable draft capital on such an uncertain piece that even without the uncertainty tells you it's a it's a bad, bad, bad play. I mean, uh, it's a no-brainer. I'm passing on all those foreign pitchers right now. They're nice people. They're great. Yamamoto is going to be great. I just don't want to pay that price because in the long run, if I buy players like that, it's not going to work out. I understand Kodai Senga worked out last year. Fine, but it's. I'm not going to say the exception to the rule. I'm going to say it's still not the better value play. Well, it's just not the rule, I think, is the most important thing. Uh, how about age? How should fantasy managers be accounting for a really quite above-average starting pitchers in age, like Max Scherzer, Hugh Darvish, and we've already heard some bad injury news about Justin Verlander? Yeah, so I think with we've concluded that with the older pitchers or the aging pitchers, it's a little bit different because the performance aspect is less in question. Right. I think that we we know that guys like Scherzer, when healthy, are going to be great. Of course, there's a little bit going to be of a drop as the age goes. But for these, listen, Rob Silver commonly says Hall of Fame pitchers do Hall of Fame things. And when you have the survivor bias of the fact that, well, Scherzer has lasted to 40, uh, Verlander has lasted to 40. You know, what is the aging curve for 40? Well, <laughs> at the top of the curve, you have these guys, guys who are 40, who aren't so good, who would have experienced a huge aging curve drop. Well, they're no longer in the major. They're out of the game. Right? Yep. They're out of the game. You don't even see them appear on the curve because there's no data. They're not there. So you're not going to see the aging curve for 40 and over or, or the older guys is very, very, very different than a standard aging curve for that reason. So the performance aspect I'm less concerned about. Uh, I think that projections will get that fine, but the innings and the playing time and staying healthy, that's, that's the gamble. Uh, so I'm always uncertain about playing time. Look, Clayton Kershaw, if you pegged the last couple of years for 115, 120 innings and you bought him to that price, you were happy because he got that. You just can't project him for, for much more. Is Scherzer going to pitch? You have 15 starts? I don't know. You probably have to, when you're pricing him, take off a bunch of starts and say, well, just, you know, buy to a lower amount. I'm okay with when he's there. So it's not a gamble to be in the lineup when, when he's back. I just don't know what I'm going to get out of him, and you have to price accordingly. You and Paul Sporer and your partner, Ruvain Guy, were talking about uh, how to build a pitching staff, and Ruvain said he believes in a build that has six starters, two closers, and one middle reliever. Uh, I don't know that you agreed quite with that. Uh, how do you look at it? So we are talking, uh, of course, about a 15-team mixed roto because the answer would be different for something deeper or for something more shallow. But in that type of format, I think Ruvain is generally right. I think in general you want to be starting six starters and two closers, and uh, it, if you don't have a third closer, a really good middle reliever is going to really help your ratios especially in the game today when innings is, is far less. And some of these middle relievers can strike out 100 batters almost. Uh, so that is true. But it is a week-to-week -week thing. Uh, if you have fantastic starters, you can throw in a seventh starter. If you your starters have terrible matchups for the week, throw in two middle relievers and go to five starters. Uh, so I think it really depends week to week in terms of when I draft. And I'm going to talk about the auction sense where, you, you know, you have nine players that you have to come away with the auction. I generally do want to take six starters at least 
two closers at least. And then I might either take a starter or a closer as my last spot, or at least a, a dart on a closer, depending upon how the build comes. I would not be taking a middle reliever in uh, the active part of an auction because middle relievers can be had very late in your good quality ones, very late in your uh, snake draft portion in the reserve rounds, uh, or even pick them up off the wire. I mean, Yenier Cano is an example from last year, a guy you could have just plucked off the waiver wire. And performance is really not very sticky for middle relievers year to year, but they are sticky in the middle of the year. So you don't have to invest any, you don't have to invest any draft capital in middle relievers, even if you do want to use them during the year. So it, it's a usage approach but it's also a drafting approach that you have to be aware of. You guys talked about some pitchers whom ATC has projected as good values relative to the implied value of their ADP. First of all, how do you derive an implied value from the ADP? Well, um, you have to make a curve. Uh, and what I do is I come up with, I call it ADP dollars. I look at some prior auctions. I look at... Uh, uh, yeah, mostly prior auctions. I also, there are some formulas, some logarithmic formulas that can show what a curve would be. But you basically want to get into a position where you translate, here's ADP 1, 2, 5, 10, 15, 100, 150, and have a numerical dollar associated with it. Again, the, the best source is the AAVs where you, you can just see what the distribution is. And you line that up with the current ADP. Um, it's going to be wonky at the top. Acuna, what is what is a appropriate value yeah. for that number one slot? Well, it's not $60, probably more than 47 So, you know, it's going to be wonky at the very top or the very couple of top slots. But in general, you can get a pretty, pretty uh, good smooth uh, curve for uh, like second round and, and down uh, just by looking at it. And then you match up your auction dollars that you would generate from an auction calculator and compare it to the ADP dollars. Anything your value is over will be a bargain. And if not, it would be uh, an overpay. So one guy you mentioned was Jordan Montgomery currently going at pick 150. I think he's a free agent still, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. So what do you like about Jordan Montgomery? Well, first of all, part of Jordan Montgomery's seeming apparent bargain of projections compared to the ADP has to do with the fact that he didn't didn't sign yet. Maybe owners don't know, oh, is he going to be in a good ballpark, bad ballpark? Is he going to be on a really good team for the wins or not? So you're going to see his price depressed. As soon as he gets picked up by a team, He his price will go up. Uh, I think that is an, a buying opportunity in and of itself because Montgomery should be on a good team. At at this point, you're not going to have the Pirates signing Jordan Montgomery. That would have happened already. So you can probably assume he's on an above-average team, and that would only add to his value. So his price won't be uh, as much of a bargain as it, as it is now. But Montgomery has been super stable with the innings, super stable with the ratios. I mean, he's been uh, under a four ERA for the last four years or so. His whip has been really controlled. His walk rate has come down. His strikeout rate has been steady, not super great, but okay-ish. Uh, he's just a very reliable pitcher, stays in games, um, and, you know, just getting there. His, uh, his homers, not too bad, and he'll sign with a good team. I think wins are going to become more to him than you think. Like I said, I think if he's a free agent at this point, he's going to sign with a good team. And you want you want pitchers on good team because wins are quite fickle these days, I believe. How about Griffin Canning? So Griffin Canning, 
who is a little bit later than uh, than um, uh, Montgomery. Yeah, Canning. Uh, I think he's got he's got some upside. His walk rate has come down. Strikeout rate really ballooned to uh, to a beautiful. 26% last year. There's nothing fluky about his metrics, his numbers. Uh, in fact, his ERA of 4-3 last year seems actually unlucky. Not going to get the wins. I'm not in love with that pick for uh, for some wins upside. But, yeah, his the market is just not valuing him enough. Uh, his ratio, he, he's due for a good regression, I think, is, is what it is. Um, it's possible also that he's been hurt, that he didn't pitch in 2022. Uh, so maybe people just want to see more stability, but I think it is a spot where you can take a chance and the draft cost, we're talking, uh, one of your latest three, four rounds in the draft. So great, great spot to pick a guy who could shoot up. Nestor Cortez uh, of the Yankees going past pick 200. Oh, Nestor Cortez. We're talking about a guy who, uh, just two years ago was a $23 player in auctions. Um, last year I would have just, simply attribute that to bad health uh on the show Ruvain said you know they didn't really have a good number two last year where don was hurt so maybe he was pressing it last year and that didn't do him good he's not the case this year i think he's he's healthy and his ratios have just been outstanding when it's there it, it's the perfect upside dart you, you don't have to spend more than an 18th 17th round pick and you're getting a guy who according to projections is an 11 dollar player and his upside we're talking, you know, just like, like I said before, $23 type player. Great strikeout rate. Walks are fine. He's a guy who uh, you, you want to take a chance. The Yankees are always going to have opportunities to win. They've got a great lineup. They added Juan Soto. It's the perfect spot for a gamble. You want to take these darts on these guys uh, down low, and Cortez fits the mold. I think uh, ATC has them for ERA just under four. And a whip around one fifteen or so, so not bad for pick two twenty or whatever it is. Uh, and finally, yeah. what about John Means in Baltimore? He's going to start the year going slow, is what I heard. Yeah, John Means. Um, you know, when I when I talked about this in the show, it was before he he got hurt, um, or at least before the Orioles indicated that he was behind schedule. I think John Means. I think the Orioles purposely want to limit his innings because they want him to be available for late season and playoffs. So if he only if it's only going to pitch 140 innings or so, they want it to be later. So they're okay with starting his throwing program a month late. Um, he was going for a dollar or two in auctions. I think that that's going to drop his price to either reserve pick. Uh, I think for formats that include the IL, it's a good pick because this was a really good pitcher, and he is going to get a chance to win games. He looked very good when he came back in the limited time last year. For the NFBC, um, I did happen to draft him in my league before the injury. I don't know if I would do that now because there's no IL spots you know, you'd have to hold him for a month. It really depends. I think we need a little bit more information on when he's going to come back to know whether he's holdable in an NFBC style, no IL league. But uh, for everybody else who does have an IL slot, sure. He's a guy you can take a chance on and he won't cost you much at all. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs, Beat the Shift podcast, and ATC projections. And Ariel, I like to wrap these discussions up by looking at some boons and banes. Since we're in spring training, let's start with some boons. These are players you look, think look like good value for drafts. How about in the early round, who's a batter you like? It's hard to come up with an early round batter because they're all you know, they're all going early. So, you know, uh, oh, is that guy going to be the number one pick? 
Uh, but uh, my shot here is Michael Harris, who you can get in the third round. He's actually being pushed up, so maybe even the second round. Uh, but uh, I, like I said, outfield is getting thin these days, so you do want the outfielders. Michael Harris, if I had to name all the players uh, who are projected for at least 20 stone bases and a 285 batting average, uh, according to ATC, there's just two players. It's Harris and, of course, Ronald Acuna. Uh, so it's elite company. He's over a 1.25 Z score for three out of the five scoring categories. And he's definitely well above average in all of them. So you're getting a fantastic base. Um, you know, he's a guy who has been almost first round value on a per at bat uh, basis. Uh, he had 500 at bats last year. If he can push that up to 550, 580, yeah, we are talking about first-round value for what he's been done. He hasn't doesn't have too many holes uh, in his game. Maybe the ground ball rate is a little bit too high. I'd like him to walk a little bit more, but his contact rate is great. His ele other elements are great. So I think Harris could be uh, a value even getting him late second, third round. Yeah, that's where he was going in the draft I was in just the other day and the couple that I've been watching. Uh, how about in the mid-rounds, who's a batter who could be a boon? Let's go with Alec Bohm, who, by the way, I had as a boon uh, last year. And, yes, I was right about him. He earned $19 last year. He earned $16 the year before. Why is he only going for an auction equivalent of $8? That makes absolutely no sense. We've seen him hit for a high average last couple of years, and I believe that's completely true. Look at his contact rate, 85% contact rate last year. I love guys who have the high contact rate. That means that their batting average has a reasonably high floor, and you will can expect uh, production more, much more stable. Um, he's one of the only guys with higher than a, like a .75 Z-score batting average in late rounds, and, and he's at a scarce position. Third base is, uh, is a scarce position to get that kind of production. Now, he had 20 homers last year. I'm projecting him for 16 homers. I actually, as an analyst, would say that the projections are low. I believe he is a 20-homer guy. And look at all those RBIs. He's got a fantastic lineup. He's going to have a healthy Harper this year, Castellanos, Schwarber in front of him. Uh, he had almost 100 RBIs last year. I'm not even projecting him for that. I'm projecting for 77. And even at 77 RBIs, he's a couple-dollar bargain. So I think that there's a very high percentage chance he out-earns his spot. Alec Bohm is uh, a nice one that I like. How about a late-round batter who's a boom? Let's go with Kerry Carpenter, uh, outfielder on Detroit. He was a $9 player last year. He's only going for $5 now. I'm projecting him for about an $11 value. He had 278 last year, 20 homers, 6 stolen bases. And that was just in about 400 at-bats. And he's going to get playing time this year. Uh, especially if he performs, he's going to stick in the lineup. And I think he's a good late source for run production metrics. Runs and RBIs, which are 40% of your roto value, they're actually really hard to come by. Uh, I did a quick study and on the waiver wire, very hard to get these runs and RBI guys. And Carpenter could provide a really nice amount with a decent average. And he's well spread categorically. He's got some homers. He's got steals. There's many paths to value for him. I love the guys who have many paths to value because if he's deficient in one, he could be abundant in the other. Uh, so I, I like him for a great value. And he's going after the 15th round. So uh, a nice late pick. Over to the mound. Uh, who's a pitcher going in the early rounds you think could be a boon? Uh, Zach Eflin, you know, he's, Eflin's one of these guys. And I always, when I see such a bargain, especially early on, I'm, I try to poke holes. Okay. What's, what's wrong? Why is he going like this? 
I, I really can't find find it. He does not seem to be the least bit unlucky last year. Tampa Bay knows what they're doing. Uh, are people suspicious that this is only one one year worth that he's at this level? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're concerned about his knees or or uh, his health. Uh, maybe he did have a hundred, almost 180 innings last year. Uh, I mean, he's just fantastic. 3.4 walk rate percentage last year. That's like George Kirby territory. Uh, and he's got more strikeouts than George Kirby. He's going to have 190 plus strikeouts uh, for what he did last year. He's fantastic improvements in strikeouts. He changes pitch mix from more cutters and curveballs. Huge, huge discount in early rounds. Uh, again, I'm asking, like, what am I missing? Why, why is he a value? But that's what I land on. So, uh, Zach Eflin. In the mid-rounds, who's a pitcher you think is a boon? Chris Bassett. Chris Bassett pitched on average into the seventh inning last year. Um, there are very few pitchers that you can say that. He's a unicorn. Uh, pitchers hardly go five innings now. And again, his average average was into the seventh if you want wins the only way to get wins is to pitch long right you're not going to get wins pitching five innings you're much better off being a lesser pitcher and pitching seven innings and look at his win total 16 wins last year 15 wins the year before it's 100 percent true so yes oh his value just comes from wins well there's a reason because he lasts long and that should continue he is a workhorse 200 innings last year by the way um now look at his era his era has never been over 3.8 ever uh at least uh looking since 2018. uh last year was one of his worst 3.6 but by the way if you take away his very first start of the season when he wasn't fully ready, which he gave up nine earned runs, yep. his ERA would have been 3.25, which would have been one of the best in his career. It was almost like the Lance Painter effect, but at the start of the season, not at the end of the season. Um, so uh, we're talking we're talking about a guy who just performs, gives you value, and you can get him in the mid-rounds, stabilize the array, stabilize whip. He has enough strikeouts, not a fantastic strikeout guy, but he has plenty, uh, and it gives you the volume and gives you the win. So uh, I, I love Chris Bassett. And how about a late-round pitcher who could be a boon? I'll give you two from the same team. How about Ryan Pepiot and Aaron Savali? These are guys that Tampa Bay said, hmm, we're interested in them, so let's acquire them. Uh, Ryan Pepiot last year, .76 whip. Limited innings, of course. I'm interested in to see what he can do over an extended period of time, but uh, I think he, he can get there. And something that Nick Pollock said that when he was on our show, he said, you know, the Dodgers you uh, don't really approve or don't like pitchers throwing some some high forcing fastballs, which is Brian Pepeo's one of his better pitches. Tampa Bay does. So his pitch mix is more suited, even better, for Tampa Bay. So I, I think that is very interesting. And uh, Aaron Savali, uh, Savali, as soon as he went to the, the Rays, his strikeout rate jumped above 30 percent, 30, and his walk rate fell below 6 percent. Uh, and the reason why he might not be uh, going so high is that I think his ERA is masked by the fact that he was pretty unlucky like his skills jumped tremendously when when he went to tampa bay but his surface stats were far worse and that's masking what amazing year he had last year and what an amazing year he could have this year uh so i think those are guys that you can extract value low down tampa's known to do it savali and pepio very very good buys late 
Let's go to your Banes. Uh, again, we'll start in the early rounds with a batter you think is being overdrafted and could be a Bane. And so I've been listening to your show, uh, Patrick, and so far nobody has mentioned, at least I don't think they have, Ellie Dela Cruz. Um, I mean, there's there's no value suck that I can think. Ellie Dela Cruz, when you draft a batter in the second round, you've got to be sure he'll get all the playing time in the world. There's no justification if the guy is going to uh, underperform and they're going to bench him, sent to the minors, have playing time uh, log jams like Cincinnati does. They've, Cincinnati has too many infielders. Um, I'm, 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 of course, Dela Cruz will get the bulk of, of the playing time, but there is a log jam. I can see him sitting. I mean, if he's going to hit 215 like he did late down the year, uh, I would sit him, wouldn't you? Uh, and and that was his worst. He, he hit 235 for the year last year. Uh, I mean, that's that's not that great. 235, a 300 OBP, just a 710 OPS. Uh, this guy, I'm not sure he's going to last the whole year. I, I can see him, the, them giving him the Jordan Walker treatment and sending him to the minors for a little bit. Projections have him as a sixth-round player, and he's going in the second round. I do not see any upside to, to, to achieve that. Of course, there is a chance, but I don't think he's going to be a first-round player. And the other thing is that if you look, it's it's a game theory. It's a gameplay uh, strategy. He's only good in one category in stolen bases. He's a negative for RBIs. He's a negative for batting average. He's a negative for power. Maybe he gets a little bit more runs than the average person. You can't start out your draft with negative, negative, negative in the hitting when everybody being taken around you is super plus two Z score plus one Z score. You're going to start out with negative in three categories in almost four categories. You'd have to compensate, but there's nobody to take after that to compensate for. And then you're missing out on other stuff. So it's just a very, very bad pick. I can see taking him in an auction. If you get, Enough of a discount, but not in a draft in the second round. So just a terrible buy. Yeah, you're not the first person to say that here on Baseball HQ Radio. I know Gene ah. McCaffrey was uh, of a similar mind to you. I'm of a similar mind to you, and I'm a Reds fan. Um, I mean, Matt McClain just got hurt. I just read the uh, this morning, I think. And so there's maybe a little bit less pressure from other players insofar as the uh, Reds infield is concerned. But... Yeah, I mean, if he comes out of the gate and hits 195 or 205 or something like that for the first three weeks and just isn't doing anything, I can see, I mean, the Reds, they have options. That's one of the things about having lots of good young players. They they have lots of good young players. They can take the place of other good young players. Yeah, I mean, and and if you want to get steals, you can take Esther Ruiz later. You don't have to sacrifice a second-round pick. You can take him. I'm more confident that Ruiz is going to steal the the requisite bases that he has than than I am on Dela Cruz. How about in the mid-rounds? Who's a batter who's likely to be a bane? I keep pointing myself to Hassan Kim, who I think is overdrafted, overvalued by the market. His team is not as good this year. They lost Juan Soto, so his run projection metrics are going to be down. I think he overstole 38 stolen bases. I don't see that coming. Uh, I don't see any upside from where he's being drafted. Very, very high draft pick in the sixth round. I understand he has position eligibility flexibility. It's not worth a couple of rounds difference. So uh, down on Kim, I think that's an overdraft. How about in the late rounds? Who's a batter who could be a bane? Hard always to give a bane in the late rounds because, I mean, the late rounds, they're a late round pick. They don't cost you much. But I will say Henry Davis, 
who I think is being drafted by a lot of people thinking he's going to be the catcher and going to get, oh, my God, he's get so much playing time, and, and he's a catcher. I think they're overpricing that catcher bump. I also am not sure how much he's going to catch. They did sign Yasmani Grandal. Uh, I can see him uh, splitting time with Grandal even getting the bulk. I can see in the outfield, I can see him being platooned as the short side platoon. I don't know he's going to get the requisite at-bats. His skills are decent, but I don't know if he's going to get the playing time to justify uh, some people jumping him a couple of rounds and convinced he's going to be the catcher. So, uh, sure, in a deeper, deeper league, I can see that possibility if you want to take a chance. But in your standard mix, he is being overdrafted. Back to the mound we go. Who's an early-round pitcher you think could be a bane? Well, I would say Yamamoto. Uh, that's an easy one, but we've covered him. But uh, I'll mention one more. I'll say Devin Williams. Not because Devin Williams isn't good. He's actually really good. Uh, but I do believe that his draft cost is prohibitive. If you're going to take him in the third round, you're missing out on a lot of key players that you could take then. And you can get saves from a different spot. And also, I'm not confident that he'll be the closer all year because I can see Milwaukee trading him. And I'm not sure they would trade him to a team where he wouldn't close. He's been the the second man, the high leverage guy before. So uh, I don't know if I would bake a third round price and bank 30 saves plus. I think that is a little bit of a gamble. I'm willing to take a lesser closer, and I'll take a hitter in the third round. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And the closers is another one of those tiers where there's quite a few guys to choose from. I mean, Williams is a little slice above with Edwin Diaz and uh, maybe one other, but there's a big run of closers that come in the fifth round, and they're not that much less likely to get saves than Devin Williams is. I think that's where I'm going to go fishing. Uh, how about a mid-round pitcher who could be a bane? Yeah, and just to add to a little bit more that I can see myself taking Williams more in an auction when you can be more fluid about the price points you pay, but in a draft, it doesn't work. Uh, mid-round pitcher of Bain, uh, Mitch Keller. Uh, I think we're talking about a guy who just overperformed last year. Regression, regression. Uh, I understand he had the strikeouts last year. He had a 26% strikeout rate. ATC is actually predicting him dropping to 23, and there are projection systems that are having dropping to 21. So I see a lot of regression in there. His walk rate has been bad in the past could jump up at any time. Are the Pirates going to win any games? I don't know. Uh, so there's just a lot of a lot of issues with, with Keller, and he is overpriced and overdrafted, so I, I'd stay away. And finally, I know it doesn't make any sense, but who could be a late-round pitcher, Bane? Yeah, well, you know what? For pitcher, it maybe like makes a little bit more sense because you could have a pitcher harm your ratios, right? And I don't want a pitcher harming your ratios. What about Lucas Giolito? Uh, he's going in the 15th round worth an auction equivalent of $4. ATC says he's minus two, which means no. <laughs> uh, he's a mid-four pitchers, a mid-four ERA pitcher, I should say. He could Last year, last two years, he was closer to a five ERA pitcher. Do you really want that? Do you really want a one three five whip pitcher like that? Uh, this reminds me of Chris Archer, who I would continually say, do not draft. His walk rate is 9 to 10%, and he actually was lucky with a very fortunate Babbitt last year, and he still had over a 1-3 whip. So these are awful ratios, and you say, well, he gives you a lot of innings. 
I don't know if I want those ratios over that many innings. Yeah. I can find the strikeouts elsewhere. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't want my ratios torched. So that's a gamble. And if that gamble's wrong, your ERA is torched. So let's try somebody else. Ariel Cohen's Boons, Michael Harris of Atlanta, Alec Bohm of Philadelphia, Kerry Carpenter of Detroit. On the mound, Zach Eflin of Tampa, Chris Bassett of Toronto, and a couple of more Tampa pitchers, Ryan Pepio and uh, Aaron Savali. Going to the Baines, Ellie De La Cruz of Cincinnati, Hassong Kim of San Diego, Henry Davis of Pittsburgh, uh, Devin Williams of Milwaukee, Mitch Keller of Pittsburgh, and Lucas Giolito of Boston. Gosh, Ariel, this has been great. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Oh, this was so much fun, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, where can you find me? I'm on Twitter X at ATCNY. Uh, only five letters, so check that out. Uh, I write for Fangraphs, Rotographs, and Roto Bowler. The ATC projections are up, and they're on multiple sites. They're on Fangraphs. They're on RotoWire this year, Roto Bowler, uh, and CBS Sportsline. And, of course, you can listen to my podcast, the Beat the Shift podcast, which uh, is once a week and during draft season, almost two times a week. So check that out. And once again, thank you so much for having me, Patrick. This is a blast. Ariel Cohen produces the ATC projection and valuation systems and writes for fan graphs. Coming up, we have our market watch player news reports with Ray Murphy next on baseball HQ radio right now, though it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say baseballhq.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage at the site, analyst Greg Pyron looks at five National Leaguers, including Pittsburgh outfielder and old boring guy Brian Reynolds and Philadelphia reliever Jeff Hoffman. And analyst Corbin Young looks at five American Leaguers, including White Sox right-hander Dylan Cease and Baltimore outfielder Cedric Mullins. The Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections manager, analyst, and writer at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. Let's get started with a report out of Los Angeles. Jock Thompson, a former Baseball HQ Radio reporter here at the, doing the news, as a matter of fact, he is also a playing time tomorrow analyst at baseballhq.com covering the American League West. And Jock reported on an unlikely first base profile who nonetheless looks like he'll be starting for LA. And Stephen Nickrand also cited Nolan Shanuel in his batters to watch in spring training column for the batters buyers guide. So what is the combined opinion of Nolan Shanuel as a Los Angeles angel first baseman? Boy, unusual profile for sure. Uh, you know, to reset, uh, you know, he is projected, you know, Jock points out he's projected as the opening day first baseman, despite some woefully subpar power projections. Uh, to, you know, to, to, if you recall, he was, Shanuel was the Angels' first round draft pick just last summer uh, and got drafted on the basis of an uber selective approach at the plate with high contact skills. But at least in this sort of first iteration of his big league career he's a singles heavy profile right now the i mean the patience and the all fields approach produces a decent batting average he hit 275 in his cup of coffee in the majors last year so that should stick but 
one home run in 132 plate appearances last year. Uh, Steven dove deeper and looked at the plate skills, I mean, which are pretty compelling. A 15% walk rate is great. 82% contact is nice. That's an eye of over 1.0, which, you know, in this day and age is like seeing a unicorn walking through your backyard. Uh, again, you know, sample size of just over 100 plate appearances, but I think that's some demonstrated plate skills there. But very, but when he put bat on ball, very little hard contact. Uh, his average exit velocity was only 85 miles per hour. His barrel rate was 2.2%. I can do this math, PD. If your barrel rate is 2.2% over 109 plate appearances, I'm pretty sure that's two barrels. <laughs> yeah, pretty close, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll watch him in March to see what happens here. I was As I was reading this profile um, you know, the other day with Jock writing him up, I was trying to come up with you know a, a comp because it is a really – weird profile for first base and i thought about mark grace but i, I think that's insulting to mark grace um it maybe, is a maybe, little, yeah. maybe casey koshman's better especially with the angels tie-in you know just somebody who we thought might eventually have some power and i don't think ever really did but um it's it, it's a weird profile for sure I thought of Eric Hosmer, but I, again, I thought, no, that's not being fair to Hosmer. He had, a, he had a little bit of power, like early twenties home runs kind of power. And this guy at, at the rate he's going looks like, what he, what did you say? He had uh, one home run in 130 some plate appearances. So if you give him 650 plate appearances, that's five home runs. <laughs> right, which exactly. is basically less than Luisa Rise, you know, which which is not enough, as is the answer in today's game. But to that point, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen if the Angels are actually willing to absorb that for 650 plate appearances. Right, they may decide at some point that they're going to send Shanuel down to AAA to, you know, try to hit the ball with something other than a noodle bat. Uh, so, it, I mean, in that case, they do have some options kicking around spring camp here most notably at first base they could go to brandon drury who played a lot of first and a lot of second last year and does provide you know legitimate power uh, you know representative at first base 26 home runs 84 rbis last year uh and he played 40 50 games at first base so he's not uncomfortable over there and then always at this time of year you can look at deep spring training rosters and you know, scan over a team's roster and say like, oh, I didn't know that guy was there. And in this case for the Angels, hey, look who's in camp. It's Miguel Sano. Remember him? Uh, so I do Sano, remember Miguel Sano, yeah. Sano is perhaps <laughs> the opposite profile of Shanuel, who, you know, brings power in spades, but no contact skills at all. So if they want to go in the 180 degree direction, they've got a guy, you know, in New York who can do that. Uh, but, you know, let's remember that, you know, with... Uh, Mr. Otani going up the freeway, uh, the DH spot is open here in Anaheim too. So maybe there is room for Sano to work his way onto this roster, even if Shanuel sticks around and, and holds down the position for a chunk of the year. So we'll see what happens with, with Sano. And, oh, Evan White's another one who got traded, I think, three times this winter from, you know, Seattle to Atlanta in, I think that with the Kelnick deal and then uh, in a salary dump there ended up here with the angels. Uh, he was a one-time prospect with Seattle, but has had a number of injury challenges since then. But if he is healthy, he's still 
too young to completely write off. So the Angels have a couple of dart throws behind Shaniel if they want him. When you think about Shaniel's profile, and I understand that it's not a standard first base profile, but the Angels may not be able to field a, a standard team. They may have to start thinking outside the box. And one thing about Shaniel's profile that uh, came up when I looked at it is he's got an on-base percentage last year over 400, which means that he's the kind of guy you might want to put at the top of the lineup. I don't know if he can run at all. And it first base, probably not. But uh, remember when the A's a few years ago put Jeremy Giambi at the top of their order and paid for it in that uh, memorable play at home played in the playoffs. But 402, bat, uh, 402 on base percentage doesn't come along every day. And it's, it's a skill that can be used if you're willing to overlook some of the uh, shortcomings. Or if you believe, as you said earlier, that Shanuel is young, he's new to Major League Baseball, maybe he's going to figure it out and start lofting the ball occasionally and his batting average might drop to 265 or something like that, but he might be able to get you 15 home runs and score 100 runs in, in the, um, not, not a great lineup, but if he's on base that often, you know, good things are going to happen. It, I think that's exactly right, both in terms of his longer-term potential. I think the strike zone control at such a young age bodes well for longer term power development. You know, you, the, the quintessential example of that, I think is uh, Kevin Euclid's, you know, the quote unquote Greek God of walks from right. money, money ball. When he was coming up through, uh, through the minors, he had no inkling of power. It was, you know, the only skill was the walks. Right. But eventually, you know, over time as he matured into his, you know, late twenties and thirties, you know, the, the power, you know, the 20 plus home run power did come. So I, you know, if you want to look at Shaniel from a dynasty league perspective, I think he's pretty interesting if you're willing to be patient and for the short term, I think you're exactly right about the lineup construction. This angels lineup also is not the uh, lengthiest lineup in baseball. I think, you know, if you've got somebody like Shaniel with a, you know, purported 400 OBP, you're not going to bat him eighth in this lineup. You're, you know, he's going to be, I would think one or two in front of Trout and, well, Trout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about it. And maybe in front of Miguel Sano, and uh, he'll get wafted along the bases by Sano's swings and misses. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty sad situation in, in Anaheim. Jock's a big uh, Angels fan, as we both know, and uh, it's going to be a long season, I think, down there. Uh, moving along, Stephen Nickrand, I mentioned, covered uh, – the uh, Shanuel story, but also had in his spring training watch a new face in Boston, your neck of the woods, outfielder Tyler O'Neill's trying for a fresh start. Oh, thank you so much for not doing the speaking of long seasons as you segue to the Red Sox. I, I, I really do appreciate that. Uh, but yes, Tyler O'Neill is the uh, one of the quote unquote big offseason acquisitions here. Uh, he was exiled from St. Louis, scooped up by the Red Sox. He, after wearing out his welcome in St. Louis, especially it seemed like with Ollie Marmel, the cards manager. So he jumps to Boston now. Uh, and Stephen, in his analysis, noted that amid an otherwise disappointing season from O'Neill, there were some important skills showing signs of growth late last year. His walk rate ticked up five points. His contact rate ticked up another 14 points, which are both super encouraging signs, but were masked by a 25% hit rate that sort of kept those 
point discipline metrics from being reflected in his overall stat line. Uh, the biggest problem with O'Neill is he's had he's a right-handed hitter who's had trouble with righty pitching. Uh, last year, only a 684 OPS. So sort of the open question here in Boston is, is he an everyday guy or is he restricted to a bad side platoon situation? It's not a completely answered question because going back to 2021 when O'Neill was really, really good, he hit righties plenty well with a 895 OPS, you know, as an everyday outfielder, he had 439 plate appearances that year. So he's not lost right on right. It's just, he's been inconsistent. Uh, but in Boston right now, he's projected as the starting left fielder with Yoshida mostly getting the DH work. And I guess we're going to see if that sticks long enough for him to get 500 plus plate appearances that might come with a 240 or less batting average, but potentially chunks of power and speed. So that's, that's the, that's the profile here. And we're going to see how it plays out. Yes, it is definitely something to watch in spring training, especially I think we'll be focusing on how does he manage right-handed pitching, but you have to take that with a grain of salt because a lot of that right-handed pitching is not going to be major league caliber or it's going to be major league pitchers who are trying a new pitch and, and making it ra- ra- easier for him to succeed. And I guess the, the, the proof will be in the pudding when opening day comes around and we'll see if he's in there against right-handers and what he does and maybe they'll start him and let him let him hit. And if he's a month into the season and he's you know, OPSing 650 or whatever it is against right-handers, then they'll have to start rethinking their plans in that regard. Let's move over to the American League and the pitching situation. The Astros didn't even have the covers off the garbage cans when the club said right-handers Justin Verlander and J.P. France have been hit by shoulder issues and they're going to at least delay their start in exhibition appearances and it could be worse. Uh, Jock Thompson again for playing time tomorrow coverage in the American League West. Let's start with Verlander. What's up? Yeah, some serious concern here, I think, uh, mostly for the Astros because they don't have a heck of a lot of depth. Uh, so it, it, on the depth on the mound, at least. So losing the 40-year-old Verlander, who they were projecting as a rotation cornerstone is potentially a really bad start to their ramp up to opening day. You might remember with Verlander that he also wasn't ready to go last year until early May, also because of shoulder issues. So this is almost, I don't know how many times it has to happen in a row before we call it an annual thing, but it's almost an annual thing with Verlander. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I already said, the most important part out loud, it's the 40-year-old Verlander. So at that age and with underlying peripherals that you know slipped quite a bit last year, even after that early season IL stint, uh, you know, there are flashing orange lights here, I think. Uh, and that's, like I said, pretty ominous for the Astros and also for anybody who has already drafted Verlander this offseason. I saw a few people throwing darts at J.P. France in later parts of drafts just because he's pitching in Houston, and it's a pretty good track to uh, to wins. I think I think France actually had uh, a bunch double-digit yeah. wins last year despite a not-that-great track record. So what do we think about J.P. France, and what, what do we do about that Houston rotation if he's also missing? And, yeah, there's uh, – even when healthy, I think you already gave the – 
most compelling reason to be interested in him, which was the team context. In terms of metro, you know, 11 wins last year and 23 starts, that's what happens when you have the Astros bullpen and lineup around you if you're even a competent pitcher, and he was competent last year. But only 101 strikeouts in 130 innings kind of speaks to the lack of dominance that really is almost disqualifying in this day and age. Uh, he only struggled down the stretch, really uh, looked like he got exposed as he worked deeper into last season. August and September were pretty rough. Uh, so, yeah, other than the fact that it might be the Astros giving him the ball to go out to the mound every fifth day, there wasn't much to recommend him. And now that we've got health questions on top of it, I think it's a pretty he becomes a pretty easy stay away. So I was looking at the Houston depth chart at BaseballHQ.com. I see Christian Javier at the top of the rotation, Framber Valdez second, Hunter Brown, then Verlander still on there, I guess, for now. And then you've got, with bullet points, which I assume means we're not sure about this, uh, J.P. France is one, Jose Urquidy's one, uh, Luis Garcia and Lance McCullers. Garcia and McCullers are hurt. And uh, Jose Urquidy, eh, not exactly a, a savior in any sense of the word. No, not exactly a savior. Urquidy, you know, ha- has had some struggles of his, both in health and performance in recent years. Last year, a 529 ERA that was fully supported by a 551 expected ERA. So that's hard to get excited about. Uh, Jock Thompson called his skills flagging which was perhaps charitable. Uh, and again, also not a workhorse, has had plenty of injury issues. Uh, there, are, There is help on the way later in the season. Luis Garcia, who had Tommy John last spring, Lance McCullers, who also missed all of last year, are both on the way back, but they're probably summer arrivals. So neither one are an option to fill these potential opening day rotation, rotation vacancies from Verlander in France. So if you dig even deeper down that depth chart, you get to Brendan Belock, who was pressed into a starting role last year. He made their 13 starts with a 3.83 ERA that, to my recollection, were a little more than an opener, a little less than the actual starting pitcher. I seem to recall him being like a four-inning and fly guy, which is yeah, ob- so. obviously from a wins perspective, much less appealing than a five-and-fly guy. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, in terms of, you know, desperate times or, you know, when you get down to number, I don't know where we are. What are we at now? Eight or nine on the depth chart here? Seems like uh, yeah. There's, he's got a 49% ground ball rate. That might be enough to run him out there if you're the Astros. It doesn't mean we should get excited about him for the aforementioned lack of pitching deep into the game's reason. Uh, and his peripherals, which sort of sum up to a 45 expected ERA, are not exciting either. So uh, this is a tepid recommendation at best. So, but yeah, and that this might not even be enough, right? We may get further down this depth chart. We might indeed, and uh, Belak's 80% strand rate last year, so it seems like there's nowhere to go but worse. So if you're thinking about Brandon Belak, even if he makes the roster and seems to have a spot in the rotation, maybe not a lot of fantasy help there. What about prospects? Have they got anybody in the pipeline? I'm glad you asked because there are some names I really want to say here. Uh, there's, you know, Masao Tamarez uh, is one guy who, who 
threw 100 plus innings in the high minors last year, so he's probably in the mix. And then there's Spencer Arigati, because, you know, <laughs> I had to get that out. I'll have it with meat sauce. Exactly. Well, you know, I I, I recommend the Alfredo, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but they neither one is a you know top shelf prospect or anything. They look like back of the rotation profiles right now. But the back, given the back of the rotation is essentially vacant for the moment in Houston, uh, we have to consider these guys. Tomorrow's uh, we rated an eight D prospect in the minor league analyst this year, uh, number three prospect in our Houston org report, which might be as much a reflection on the lack of depth in the system as much as anything. Uh, but he's been working his way up to minors pretty st- steadily uh, and rates as sort of an under the radar, but potentially solid back end rotation candidate with, you know, as we often see with young pitchers, some command concerns doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't jump off the, off the page, but much like we were saying with B-Lock and with, uh, you know, France earlier, you're going to sort of have to take seriously anybody who gets slotted in this, in this rotation for any length of time because the team context is just glorious. Um, so, Missile Tamares. And what about uh, Spencer Arrighetti? Oh, yours was definitely better than mine. Um, maybe maybe if I got gotten through my coffee before we did this, I would have been better, but you, you win this round. Uh, we rated Arigetti number six in that liked Astros org with a uh, 7C prospect rating, so a tick behind Arigetti, both a, t- a tick behind Tamara's, both in terms of the upside and the likelihood ratings. Uh, he had good results last year, but then when he got to AAA, he got knocked around a little bit. So that is sort of a red flag that there are further adjustments needed in his uh in his arsenal there in particular you know as often happens you get to the upper minors and if your secondary pitches your off speeds are not polished those more advanced hitters just lay off of them instead of flailing at curveballs that are you know six inches outside the strike zone or something like that uh and he doesn't have uh Arigetti does not have the blazing fastball to get away without effective secondary stuff so he looks like he's ticketed for some polishing time in AAA this year, but again, if the Astros suffer any further losses in these in this rotation, they may have to ring him up pretty quickly. It seems like uh, maybe Jordan Montgomery's agent is going to be uh, expecting a phone call from the Astros. Do you think? <laughs> if Jordan's, if Mr. Boris is doing his job, and we know he is, I would think you don't wait for that phone call. You dial up the Astros and say, hi, remember me? I have a couple of pictures you might be interested in. But, you know, they just blew a lot of money on Josh Hader. So I, what, <laughs> one never knows what the budget situation is. But uh, certainly there, the Astros are one of a number of teams that would seem like they would have a need for uh, Mr. Montgomery. And you mentioned the fact that they spent all that money on Josh Hader. So it seems like they realized that their window of opportunity to get to the World Series and perhaps win it is starting to shrink closed a little bit. They have some expiring contracts coming up. I think Alex Bregman is finished this year and becomes a free agent. Uh, they just, I think they signed Jose Altuve to an extension. So they've, they've got him locked in. But this is a team that's getting a little older and uh, needs to make its moves now. And if the Houston management thinks that they have any kind of chance to win, they are going to need starting pitching, and they're going to need it sooner rather than later. 
that's exactly right. Um, but it's an interesting situation because, you know, I think this is a common tactic with the with front offices sometimes, especially ones that you say, uh, as you correctly point out here, sort of have a window that, you know, is starting to close. In theory, the hater acquisition is sort of like a one-year advance on uh, Ryan Presley's contract coming up, you know, they, so they sort of get think about it in terms of getting like one year of overlap in terms by getting Hader and Presley together. But then Presley comes off the books after this year. So then Hader, you know, they paid him more than they're paying Presley, but he sort of fits into the same salary slot, right? But you can do the same thing with Verlander because his contract's up after this year. So that's a ton of money coming off the books. You already mentioned Bregman's coming off the books. So it, it's expensive to sign a Montgomery or a Snell, but uh, it, it might, for the Astros at least, it might be a one-year, you know, sort of balloon year if, in terms of salary if they wanted to go that that way because they have a decent amount of money coming off the books after this and could fit Montgomery or Snell into their budget more easily in 2025 and beyond. So I don't know. Well, either Snell or Montgomery, I don't think it's going to take a single year contract. It'll be four or five or something like that, probably longer than it should be. Uh, we have exciting news uh, out of the Oakland bullpen, a uh, phrase you don't hear very often. In, in Oakland, uh, General Manor David Forst said that they're looking at three pitchers as potential closers. Jake Crumpler covering the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. And not that there's a cornucopia of saves to be had, but who are the three candidates? Yeah, I think the Oakland bullpen is my early nominee PD for our annual Edward Otto Oliveris Award of right. the the inverse relationship between how much time we spend talking about them versus their actual fantasy impact. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. I think we scraped on um, Mason Miller last week and we got so, you know, that was kind of pure speculation on our part, but David Forrest has come out and actually shed a little light, which is great. Uh, you know, so to reset on this, let's remember that this gig is open because Trevor May was the closer here last year and retired uh, sort of abruptly at the end of the season. Uh, maybe it was shell shock or depression after pitching all season in Oakland. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but any, we mentioned uh, Lucas Ersig, who I had to go look up the pronunciation on last week, and I've now got it right that it's Ersig. Um, he was he sort of ended the season in the job, but was not one of the three people mentioned by Forrest. So Forrest mentioned Mason Miller, who we talked about last week, who has a big arm and a starter's profile, but uh, a very brittle injury history. So they're going to try to manage his workload in the bullpen this year and force said that could include closing uh the other two names that he mentioned um specifically were trevor gott who we talked about and is sort of fits the trevor may profile of the journeyman reliever veteran guy signed to stabilize an otherwise nondescript bullpen here and as we said may pretty quickly grew into the closer role out of that profile last year. So the door is somewhat open for got to do the same. And the third name was uh, Danny Jimenez, who has cameoed in the, in this closer role a couple of times. If I remember correctly, I think he even started the season in that role last year before giving it up to May. So 
Forrest says Miller, Jimenez, Gott are going to compete. And it's also possible, given what we said last week about Mason Miller's usage pattern, that he's probably going to be a multi-inning guy a couple of times a week. It's very possible that there's room for more than one of these guys to get a chunk of the saves. Now, the bad news of that is it's the A's that, overall denominator of saves is not going to be great and if you start dividing it into pie pieces well the pie pieces are pretty unsatisfying so again we're talking a lot about the oakland bullpen for maybe reasons that don't warrant all this much attention well i think it's it's worth talking about because sometimes in drafts when you you find yourself sort of two-thirds through the draft and you don't have many saves or any saves you start wish casting a little bit and maybe oh, sure. one of the directions you look is, Hey, look, Oakland, I, I could probably draft all three of these guys in the reserve rounds and, and just wait till the cards hit the table. But I don't, I don't know that that's a viable plan because there's just going to be so few saves to divvy up that, as you said, you know, you get a one third share of the pie, but the pie is only the size of a hockey puck. And you, know, you, you, you can't even put your whole piece of cheese on top of the pie and it collapses. So uh, to extend the pie metaphor to the, to its absolute limit. I, I, I think we have now reached the limit of the pie metaphor. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you're right. But, but you're right that, you know, I, I, I joke about the importance of this, but I mean, you're exactly right about the fantasy impact. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, half closers or third closers can make a huge difference in the saves category, right? You pick up, you know, if you have a, if you pay up for one closer in NAL only league and you get 25 to 30 saves from him, you know, the guy who's also in your bullpen, like Mason Miller, who gives you eight, 10, 12 saves is going to be the guy who pushes you up in the standings over all of the other guys who only drafted one closer like you did and also got those 25 to 30 saves the difference between the 25 to 30 saves and the one guy and uh you know 42 you might have from your one guy plus mason miller could be you know a pretty substantial standings impact so that's why this matters yeah take a look at the standings gain points uh, for categories. And if you did get 12 saves out of a guy, I think that is kind of around a point and a half or close to two points if you get 12 saves. So it's not nothing. That really takes the cake, I have to say. <laughs> uh, moving along to the National League, uh, Whit Merrifield has landed in Philadelphia. Uh, not exactly like the eagle landing on the moon, I understand, but Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. Where does Whit Merrifield fit into the plans of a pretty loaded Phillies team? Yeah, this this is a team that did not have a, at first glance, an obvious need for Merrifield. But it, if you look at it more closely, it ends up being just uh, your basic depth play. Merrifield, of course, is fairly versatile. He's split his time over his career almost equally between second base and the outfield, most recently in Toronto last year. For the Phillies, Bryson Stott's pretty well established at second base, so we would expect Merrifield to skew more toward the outfield here. Uh, that's especially true early in the season with uh, Brandon Marsh. It's already dinged up and maybe questionable for opening day. Uh, the inexperienced Johan Rojas is penciled in as the center fielder. So there are a couple of places that Merrifield could add a little bit of depth and veteran stability. Uh, and, and that is before the inevitable injuries that come along to every team and could create some opportunities for Merrifield back in the infield. Although, 
he's not exactly a utility infielder. He's spent almost all of his time only at second base, although he has masqueraded at first a couple of times, and one has to think he could do that if, uh, for some reason, Bryce Harper was unavailable on a given day. So we're projecting a total of 60% total playing time for Merrifield, uh, a third at second base, and the rest split between outfield and DH. Uh, it, but in terms of what to expect in that playing time, uh, 2023 was a, actually a rebound for Merrifield after 2022 looked like it might have been sort of the beginning of the end, but uh, he defied father time and his skills um, skills didn't move that much, but uh, he, he did bounce back from uh, a 2022 that was kind of a crater. So maybe there's still a little bit of value left in this tank at age 35 here and a 50-60% role is probably most appropriate for 35-year-old legs. I asked Brent Hershey about this too because he's a Phillies guy and we were um, we were in a draft uh, together and I was asking him about whether he was worried about Merrifield taking time away from Johan Rojas, who we mentioned earlier uh, in center field. And he said, no, I think Merrifield's really just the bench piece. And I reminded him, uh, poor Phillies fan Brent, that the NLCS with the Diamondbacks ended with uh, pinch hitter Jake Cave up uh, for the last out of the game and getting getting blown away by, uh, I guess that was uh, Paul Seawald. But uh, Brent said, yes, that's why Merrifield is here. Don't remind me. So <laughs> there's, there's the bottom line. Well, I, I watched a lot of Toronto last year, and if Whit Merrifield's your idea of a savior in any kind of offensive sense, I think you might be whistling in the wind his OBPs the last couple of years have been barely over 300, uh, 318 last year, I think 290 the year before when he was, uh, re he really struggled and he wasn't delivering anything. The one thing he delivers or could deliver from a fantasy point of view is he still runs a lot and fairly effectively at 26 stolen bases last year for Toronto in about 600 plate appearances. And it says something about Toronto that Whit Merrifield had 600 plate appearances, but he did, and so if you think he's going to get, what, 500 in Philadelphia bouncing around or 400, you're still looking at the better part of 20 bags, and if you get that in the 23rd round, it's not nothing. Yeah, and the other thing about it is as a bench guy, you know, he could be in games in the late innings a lot and, you know, finding opportunities to run there. The stolen base per plate appearance numbers could even go up because, as you say, he's still a very effective base stealer and they'll put him into spots where they need that skill. So I, I, I do think even in 400 plate appearances, 20-plus stolen bases is a good bet. And another thing that makes him attractive to a manager, he's not just a good base stealer. He's a really good base runner. He goes first to third really well. He goes first to home really well. He, he understands the shape of the game when he's on the base paths. He's really effective and actually fun to watch in that regard. Uh, reports from Milwaukee, Ray, say that outfielder Sal Fralick has been getting some reps at second base and third base. Alan Davison covers the Brewers for playing time today. So why is the club looking at Sal Freilich, a pretty good outfielder, as an infielder? It's because they seem to have a log jam in the outfield. Uh, keep in mind that they, <clears throat> one of their big moves this offseason was to lock up prospect Jackson Churio for the very long term with one of those uh, you know, eight-year contracts, or I think it was eight years, that cover you know his entire arbitration years buy out a couple of years of free agency so he's in one of the churios in one of those situations now where there's no reason to play service times time games with him and he should be on the opening day roster 
But that's what creates the logjam because they have Churio, Christian Yelich, Garrett Mitchell, Joey Weimer, Blake Perkins all in the outfield along with Frelick. So to create some versatility, they're now looking at getting Frelick's bat into the lineup a little more often by putting him on the dirt. But the dirt is not exactly a, a an arid open space like the uh, Mojave Desert either. It's a bit of a mob scene developing there. Yeah, this is a fairly deep team for a team that we're not expecting all that much from this year, which I guess, you know, notably, we're not talking about the pitching in this conversation, which I guess is the reason why we think they're not going to be very good. Yeah. But, but yes, if we're looking for Freilich to pick up time at second or third base, he joins a group of... Bryce Terang, the newly acquired Joey Ortiz, Andrew Monasterio, Tyler Black is another prospect who may have the inside track on the third base job, or at least did before they acquired Ortiz. Oh, and Owen Miller, who is mostly a bad side platoon guy, but is eligible at first, second, and third, which I know because I've drafted him in a couple of deep draft and hold leagues already just because of that eligibility. So, yeah, they have a bunch of options here. Uh, we sort of have them projected with Terang having a leg up in the second base job and probably Ortiz with an edge over Black at third base right now, but that's all pending March developments. So is there room in those two positions for Freilich? It's kind of hard to see unless some of these guys, I mean, all of these guys that we're mentioning on the infield at least have minor league options and could be returning to AAA for more seasoning at their at, at their position. So maybe that's how Freilich gets into the lineup or maybe um so we're we're so we're chunking we're we're chunking I should say Freilich's time around a little bit um and to remind you about Freilich's skills as a rookie last year he had 246 only 3 homers with 7 for 7 stolen bases in 223 plate appearances so there's at least the the outline of a power speed combo there uh and he hit a career 314 in the minors so there should be bat to ball skills that in theory, would unlock that power and speed if the opportunity came. I mentioned earlier, Stephen Nickrand had his batter buyer's guide looking at hitters to watch in spring training. More than 20 names in both leagues combined and in his National League list. One of the names, this is interesting to me, Colorado first baseman Alahuris Montero. Ray, this guy has been quite a subject of uh, discussion, shall we say, about where he belongs uh, in uh, 2024 drafts. Yeah, this was a good note from Steven because it was a case where I realized I had a blind spot or and or had missed some of the developments with Montero and needed to sort of reset my priors on him. Uh, if you remember, Montero had a monstrous start to the, the spring last year that got him a opening day roster spot and a semi-regular look in the Rockies lineup once the season started. Uh, he then made virtually no contact in the majors and went back down to the minors where things went pretty well, actually his, he showed some really good plate discipline down there, 9% walk rate in AAA with only a 17% strikeout rate, which was, I think less than half of what we saw in the big leagues before he got sent down. He spent most of the summer working out those contact demons in the minors. It wasn't until about September when he got back to Colorado, but this is the part I needed, I needed to reset on is that I actually missed this, that when he came back up, he showed a lot more contact that we saw from him 
early in the season. Uh, it, you know, it, it wasn't quite the uh, 17% strikeout rate that we saw in the minors, but he still managed a 70% contact rate in September in Colorado, which of course doing the inverse of that because I'm mixing my metrics here, a 70% strike, 70% contact rate is a 30% strikeout rate. So 30 was an improvement. Um, and given that there are some real underlying power skills here and a lot of opportunity in Colorado that he could get 500 plate appearances that if he can keep his strikeout rate around the 70% rate range would unlock the power. It's in, it, this is interesting, especially if you're in a league where you can sort of shuffle Montero on and off your roster when he's at home, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's, I think what we call it, uh, this kind of skill set is intriguing and it's usually the kind of adjective when I see it, I don't like it. I don't like intriguing because, uh, it's, it, it's a kind of a code word for tempting, but dangerous. Yeah. If he could just, yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Over to the National League pitchers now. In Facts and Flukes performance validation, analyst Greg Pyron took a deep look at a relatively unheralded right-hander as a possible closer for the Phillies. That would be a job that would be worth having. It sure would be. And this is a somewhat low name ID bullpen now with uh, remembering that Craig Kimbrell was sort of the headliner in this bullpen last year and he's moved to Baltimore and they have not really replaced him with an established closer. So Hoffman is a guy who is now in this mix in this revamped Phillies bullpen. And he's pretty darn interesting, uh, mostly because he reinvented himself last year. Before last year, he had a lifetime 560 ADRA, 20% strikeout rate, and 11% walk rate, which if you do the math on that is a command ratio of less than 2.0, which is disqualifying for just about any pitcher, let alone a closer candidate. But he, as I said, he sort of completely re rebooted his arsenal and reinvented himself in 2023. And despite his skills with, uh, you know, in a big way, started the season in AAA, presumably refining those new offerings. And then when he got up to AAA, when he got up back up to the majors in May, from the rest of the season there, a 2.41 ERA, 11 holes and 52 innings, and the skills were just a completely different guy. He spiked his strikeout rate and was fully backed by the swing strike rate, which is what you want to see as the sub-indicator for strikeouts. And he was doing it with multiple pitches. He kind of reinvented his slider, I think, turning into one of those sweeper kind of deals. And that also elevated his splitter, which is another high strikeout, uh, high swing strike pitch. And on top of that, he spiked his velocity too. So throwing harder, throwing better breaking balls that are getting more swings and misses. So, you know, one of the things about these relievers is when they, or pitchers in general, but especially relievers, is when they change their arsenal like this, you sort of have to forget forget your priors and forget about the 585 career ERA from Hoffman before last year because that might as well be a different guy. He's, you know, he's completely re changed how he attacks hitters. He's throwing harder. He's got the ground ball rate going too. Oh, and by the way, was he, when he started throwing harder and throwing these new pitches, he also threw more strikes. So he's kind of checking all the boxes all of a sudden. And like you say, 
these are now closer-worthy skills in a bullpen that does not have an established closer. Oh, and by the way, this is not the Oakland bullpen. This is a bullpen for presumably a 90-plus win team that will have a lot of save opportunities. So, yeah, Jeff Hoffman. ADP around 600, Stephen reports, which makes him the kind of candidate uh, that you really need to be looking at for your reserve list or if you're in one of those 50-round draft and holds. This guy looks like a a pretty excellent speculative pick. Uh, I'll be talking, speaking of speculation, with uh, Baseball HQ speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield in our next segment, but let's have a bit of a preview of his column this week about rebound candidates for 2024. And one of the many names in Ryan's column was one that I was really interested in, Nick Lodolo of Cincinnati. Yeah, just a lost year for Lodolo last year. Only 34 innings, awful ratios, and then a leg injury that shut him down for, I think, almost the entire rest of the season after you know May or something like that. Uh, but Ryan thinks that the market is kind of overreacting to that lost year last year, uh, that his Lodolo's indicators in those small samples were better than they were in 2022 and that despite the bad outcomes that he was actually showing some signs of growth in those 34 innings the swing strike rate was up 13.6 percent swinging k is really good for a starter and his ball percentage was also better so that's seems like you put those two things together and you've got the makings of emerging command which is of course always a key thing to be watching for a young pitcher like Lodolo. Uh, He was ruined by a 27% home run per fly ball rate, which will happen in great American small park. But even there, even there, 27% is a little bit off the charts. So we have to expect some regression there. Then a 45% hit rate too, which is just silly in any ballpark. So uh, the luck factors should normalize for Lodolo and allow him to potentially demonstrate that emerging command of what we already know is really good stuff. So that's why Ryan thinks that uh, for a 26-year-old who had 34 very bad innings last year, this is a, uh, a market overreaction that Ryan is willing to speculate on. And that's what Ryan does in that space. So who are we to say no? Yeah, he, he writes it as, what is the, the standard belief about the speculator column is, these are recommendations that have about a 20% likelihood of succeeding. And I, I understand that, but I think Lodolo has a better than 20% chance of succeeding, given what Ryan said about his his skills versus his outcomes last year and this horrendous luck that he had, uh, maybe pitching with that leg injury caused him some problems, but uh, 27% home run per fly ball rate and a 45% hit rate is like half again what it should be. It should be around 30%. Yeah. Criminally unlucky. And you're right. I, you know, with 20% and underplay, but you know, for sure there's risk with Lodolo related yeah. to the ballpark, related to the fact that he's still a young pitcher, related to the fact that due to the injury last year, we have questions about even if he's healthy, what his innings limit would be this year. But Yes, I would say more than a 20% play. There's a, you know, closer to a coin flip that he returns some decent value this year, I would think. And before I let you go, Ray, we were talking earlier before we started the formal part of the proceedings here about uh, Jordan Montgomery. And uh, we were discussing the possibility that he might get a phone call from Houston. 
But you said uh, you have some uh, local Boston knowledge about this situation, that Boston was interested, he was interested in Boston, and for a family reason rather than a sports-related or team-related reason. Yeah, the local scuttlebutt was, even fairly early in the off-season, was that uh, Montgomery's wife, I guess, is a medical resident and doing her residency in Boston. So Montgomery had some predisposition to wanting to be in Boston because his wife is here and, you know, will probably be here for a, for a while for her career. And I, as I was saying, PD, you know, one of those things about being a medical resident is I don't think she's going to get a lot of time to a lot of time off to go on the road with her husband. Right. So if Jordan wants to see her, he's going to have to come to Boston, I think. Uh, but you know that was fairly fairly early offseason scuttlebutt in the local media, and obviously they haven't worked anything out. So I don't know if the Red Sox said, "Oh, you want to be here? We'll give you the league minimum." And Jordan was like, uh, "No," um, or if you know there was also some scuttlebutt that the Red Sox were trying to free up salary by moving Kenley Jansen, and of course that hasn't happened either. So. I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there are still some dominoes to fall here. You know, kind of the overall theme with these Scott Boris clients, or with the the big four remaining free agents here, with Snell and Montgomery and Chapman and Bellinger, is that somebody's got a blink. Now, Boris, of course, has a long track record of getting guys more money than you ever thought he could get them at a later calendar date than you ever thought it would happen. So I, I think we've learned not to doubt uh, Boris in these situations. But on the other hand, if I were Scott Boris's client or if I were Jordan Montgomery right now, I'd be ringing up Mr. Boris every five minutes saying like, okay, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Come on. It's, guys are in camp. I got to go. Come on. I'm throwing, you know, let's get on with this. So, uh, you know, I don't, it probably depends whether the player or the agent is really the, uh, the expert poker player at this point, I I would imagine. Yeah, I wouldn't bet against Scott Boris either. No, we've learned that. That's for sure. Uh, if I were a Jordan Montgomery uh, guy who had him on one of my fantasy rosters, as indeed I do, of course I'd much rather he ended up in Houston because the, the team context is so much better in Houston than it is in Boston given what's happened over the last couple of seasons in Boston's lineup. Yeah, Houston or even a return to Texas yeah. would would both seem like really good landing spots for Montgomery if you drafted him speculatively, not you know without any idea of where he was going to land. Boston, less so. Although, you know, when you think about a pitcher signing in Boston, the first thing you think is ah. AL East, no, but you know, it is one of the things we're all still, or at least I'm still adjusting to is in this era of the balanced schedule and fewer intra-division games, you know, the, your divisional meat grinder is less of a factor than it was when you were playing teams 19 times a year and fully, you know, almost half of your schedule was divisional games. We don't have that anymore. So uh, maybe, maybe signing in Boston in terms of quality of, opposition lineup is not the bad news that it was four or five years ago. And with his wife becoming a doctor, finally there'll be some money coming into the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the rare people who whose spouse is a doctor and is out earning them by a factor of 10 to 1. <laughs> you don't see that too often. And who knows? I, we don't know what her specialty is, but if she's an orthopedist, maybe she'll be, uh, you know, treating his elbow at some point uh, in, the, in the not distant future too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, honey, can you look at this, please? 
All right, Ray, really appreciate it. Now, I understand uh, we won't have a Baseball HQ Radio podcast next week because I'll be in the Dominican Republic. And at the same time, it's uh, good for you because you're going to be in Florida at first pitch. Yes, next weekend is first pitch Florida. Uh, We've got the program set. We've got three labor drafts scheduled. We're seeing the Braves and Blue Jays in Dunedin. We're going to have some drafts. We're going to have some excellent fantasy insight. I'm going to come back fully prepared for the 2024 season, as are all of the attendees. So that'll be a ball. We can catch up and talk about that in two weeks. And you could tell me about the uh, 14-year-old shortstop prospects you scouted in the Dominican, right? Well, I can tell you about the uh, the uh, libations that are available at the pool, and maybe we can compare suntans. That sounds great. A couple of Irish guys, probably not a lot to compare. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, be, we'll both be appealing by that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Very appealing. Thanks a lot, Ray. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Sounds great, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager, projections manager, analyst, and writer at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our feature expert interview with Ryan Bloomfield. But first, let me highlight some more great resources on the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Ryan Williams looks at the five teams in the American League East, including a couple of prospects who could make the outfield roster in Boston, some more prospects in Tampa vying for roster slots in the infield and at DH, and we have three pitchers battling for rotation slots in Baltimore. And analyst Jock Thompson looks at the five teams in the American League West, including rotation trouble in Houston and a left field playing time battle in Seattle. Next week on Baseball HQ Radio, well, actually we'll be back again in two Fridays, taking some time off to visit the Dominican Republic. And when we come back, it's another Friday full edition featuring Ron Chandler, founder of BaseballHQ.com and the Babs Fantasy Baseball System and the author of the new book Fantasy Expert. And we'll have Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports on that same podcast. In the weeks ahead, more top-notch guest experts, including Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs and the Launch Angle Podcast and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual. We'll have Peter Kreutzer from the Rotoman Guide at Substack. We'll have Nick Pollock from PitcherList.com and a bunch of other guests, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Ron Chandler and Scott Pianowski in two weeks on the next Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. And in this week's Market Pulse Fantasy Market Analysis, analyst Matt Cederholm continues his survey of the positions with a check of the value gaps at first base. The Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting and the Market Pulse Fantasy Market Analysis Two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview of this Friday full edition. It's Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan, welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while. Thank you, PD. It has been probably a couple years, which is which is probably my fault, not yours. But uh, either way, it's great to great to be back. I remember HQ Radio. Remember back in the days of the Metric Minute. That's when I got my start yes, on yeah, HQ Radio right, yeah. and some of the matchup sesh, uh, matchup previews and stuff like that. that yeah, starts to go way back. So yeah, it's, it's it good really to be does. back home here. The Metric Minute that, that was actually a pretty good feature. It was, there was. And still are so many metrics coming into the game. It might be time to to uh, bring it back, you know, because uh, one of the questions I saw a lot 
when I was talking to people at First Pitch Arizona was, could somebody please tell me what's going on with these StatCast metrics? Like, what do they mean? What are the, what's good? What's bad? You know, what, what, how can I use this for my fantasy? And I don't know. It seems like it might be something that's worthwhile. And I think back at that time, that was certainly well before StatCast was was, public. So there was no, you know, barrel rate or anything like that. So it it might be time for refresh we may have to take the contract negotiations <laughs> off air but uh but but yeah it could be could be time for that yeah so you had your uh, labor mixed 15 team draft earlier this week and it was uh, pretty interesting i was following along the draft board and i know you had a live stream but i was actually watching a curling match so i couldn't watch the live stream simultaneously with the draft board simultaneously with what turned out to be a really good curling match so what was your draft strategy when you're going into this labor mix 15 draft i didn't really have a set strategy so i had the i had the I, what i did most of my prep was kind of mapping out these first four to five rounds so i, I did know my draft position going in which was nice um i had the ninth pick and I felt like the the kind of the first round choice was was rather easy. We won't go through each of my picks or whatever. But but what I tried to do, my strategy was to kind of guide my first and second round picks with who I thought would be available, like in the third, fourth, fifth round. So for example, like I in the fourth round, I, I just looking at kind of the ADP and, and what hitters I think might be available at that point was not really that big of a fan of. So I knew I'd probably take a, a pitcher in either the third or fourth round or maybe both. And so that guided my decisions kind of early in the in the first two rounds where like everybody's good and it's really hard to kind of pick nits into uh, in, into each player. And that guided me going kind of two hitters first. So that was my kind of general uh, strategy early on. Knew I wanted to get uh, two decent catchers. There are a good number of... of I feel like the closer pool is pretty deep this year. So, and that I think is a result of how relatively stable closers were last season. So I felt like I could wait a little bit on closers and uh, from, I don't know, after like round 10 or whatever, it was more just kind of get, get players I like and I've been drafting so far in, uh, in draft season. Yeah. When I went into the surf draft, I actually decided ahead of time I was going to go hitter, hitter, pitcher, pitcher. And I did, and it kind of worked out the same as it did for you. Uh, I wondered, did any of your thinking change when DVR went starter-starter to start the draft? I I thought that when that something like that happens, sometimes everybody in the draft starts maybe reacting or overreacting. What did you think when you saw that he'd taken Burns after he already had Strider? I loved it. Good to to see the return of the... uh the the now branded pocket aces from dvr going uh strider and burns uh, uh derek van riper had the fifth pick and so it was interesting when the went so the decision i had to make was in the second round where i was maybe thinking a starting pitcher because I, I i think there's only like six or seven true quote-unquote aces or, or rotation anchors and in this draft uh at least compared to what I've seen so far in NFBC leagues, pitchers were going a little bit later. And this was the latest that I've seen Corbin Burns go. Uh, DVR took him at, I think, 25 or 26. Can't 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 do math at the moment. But um, it didn't really change my strategy that much because I actually thought Corbin Burns would be taken by the time I was picking in the second round. 
and and he wasn't. So um, it did throw off a little bit in terms of like I we I then knew DVR was three or four picks away from me. I knew he would either go closer or pitcher or hitter. Sorry, uh, for the next I don't know at least ten rounds, which is kind of what you have to do if you start with two starting pitchers. And that is basically what he did. Uh, Derek did not take another pitcher until the 13th round in New Darvish. So I did have that in the back of my mind throughout the draft, uh, kind of pegging Derek to not take another starting pitcher, which um, allowed me to kind of a little bit uh, play chicken and, and get some pitchers a little bit later than I thought I originally might. So you could have had Corbin Burns had that been your inclination, but you went with Ozzie Albies instead to just a balance off Freddie Freeman and add some steals and that kind of thing? A little bit of a balance off Freddie Freeman. The biggest thing, and this is this has been my I don't know if rallying cry is the right word so far in draft season. I just I want that early batting average. I, I feel like a lot of the conversation around drafts and the player pool this season revolve around like steals and getting steals. I think getting an early batting average is even more important. Not just getting an early batting average, but getting an early batting average with all the goodness that comes with a Freddie Freeman and and, and an Ozzie Albies. Uh, they both chip in double-digit bags. They should at least. Uh, nothing's nothing's a given on February twenty third when when we're releasing this. Um, but but batting average for me is a priority early in drafts, just because from a from a position scarcity standpoint. Batting average, I think, is the uh, first to kind of really fall down. So um, that was that was the impetus for Albies. I was, <laughs> it was funny. I was considering Burns, but also Gossman, Zach Wheeler, Luis Castillo. Um, all those guys were still available to me the, in, in the second round, which again I'm comparing to NFBC leagues, which does push up uh, pitchers a little bit more than what we see in labor. Um, but decided to pass and and kind of hope and pray that one of those six to seven starting pitchers that I uh, kind of referenced earlier would make it all the way back to me in the third. And it turns out it did. But uh, but yeah, that was that was the impetus for starting Freeman Albies. Get that batting average cushion. It just opens up so many more options for you later in the draft. Yeah, when I was talking to Ariel uh, just before this interview we were talking about the idea that there are these clumps of pitchers. So you had basically Strider and Cole in a class by themselves. And then unlike other years, I thought that the pitch starting pitcher tier after those guys was actually pretty broad compared to past years. I, I, you said six or seven guys. I probably would have said more like eight maybe. And uh, you got one of them in Pablo Lopez. I certainly was happy to get Luis Castillo in a similar situation to what you were in. Uh, that all That's all just what other guys in your in your draft prefer, or the guys that they prefer. But uh, a, a little later on, you were kind of at the end of a run that started mid-round. I think maybe right after you picked Lopez, then all of a sudden there was all, all kinds of closers and starters went like, I think nine out of 10 picks, something like that. Williams, Diaz, Hader, Classe, Duran all went in the space of seven picks. So it seemed like whoever took Devin Williams started a, a role. And then by the time it came back to you, you decided to go with a second starter instead of a closer. What was the thinking there? And a second starter that I, uh, if you could have, bet a hundred dollars on me taking this starter in the fourth round before the draft i would have said you're crazy uh but i did we'll get to that in a second i guess but uh yeah i was flustered that that there were it was a 
12 out of 13 pitchers, including my fourth round pick of Tyler Glass now, went in that 3-4 turn. And not only that, uh, PD, but the two the two players on the wheel, Jenny Butler and Paul Spore at the 3-4 turn, they both took two closers at the 3-4, which I, I don't think I have ever seen. Um, I've seen one team do it. I have not seen two teams do that in a row. So I had kind of pegged my fourth round pick to be a closer. Uh, but that changed instantly when it, Devin Williams, Edwin Diaz, Josh Hader, Emmanuel Classe, Yohan Duran all went <laughs> between my third and fourth round pick. So um, obviously when closers get pushed up like that, drafts are a zero-sum game, somebody's going to fall. And I was certainly not expecting uh, Tyler Glass now to be available to me in the fourth. And it's one of those things, snap decision. You've got like 50 seconds to make that call. Um, I looked at my projections. I looked at my numbers and I need like 120, 125 innings from Glass now to return that value from the that draft cost, I should say, from the fourth round. And so I said, injury risk be damned. Let's let's do it. And uh, and took Tyler Glass now, which uh, I have not done. Uh, I don't think ever. I don't think I've ever drafted Tyler Glass now. Something else that uh, I'm not the first to notice, but uh, I saw it being commented upon in social media and what have you was you took, I think, three players who literally are not signed. They're all still free agents. Uh, I know one of them was Matt Chapman and uh, Ad- Adam Duvall. Is that one of Adam, them? Adam and, Duvall and, JD Martinez. and uh, J.D. Martinez. So what's the thinking on, uh, is there extra value, assuming that they all do sign? It seemed like it. To me, so I took Matt Chapman in this again. This is a 15-team league, so I took Chapman in the in the 18th round as my <laughs> starting third baseman, which I feel a little shaky about. Uh, JD Martinez in the 21st, and then Adam Duvall in the 23rd round. And the, the thinking was, yes, it did seem like those guys were going at a little bit of a discount, given that I mean, spring training has technically kind of started uh, the first games on Thursday, February 22nd. And these guys have not signed. I'm confident that Matt Chapman will sign. I, I just think the, the, the power, the real baseball value for Matt Chapman, the defense at Big third D, base, yeah, I feel yeah. like, yeah, like I feel like, and we don't normally talk about defense and fantasy baseball, but I feel like Chapman's going to sign somewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty confident there. JD Martinez, like somewhat, Somewhat confident he is an aging designated hitter, so that that uh, limits things a little bit. But we did just see Jorge Soler sign for a decent chunk of change in San Francisco, so feel okay about that. And then Adam Duvall, I I don't feel as great about. But if I can get two of those three guys to get signed and get an everyday gig, I think uh, I think overall that gamble on those three will will pay off. And. If two out of three of them pay off, any one of them, the cost to you was so relatively insignificant that making a, just cutting guys who don't get signed is not like killing you as if you were like dropping Tyler Glasnow, for instance, in the fourth round. Uh, so it's, it seems like a, a measured gamble, if I can call it that. Yep, it was. And, 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 and in these early drafts, like we do another fab run right before the season starts, the, the kind of official opening day, um, not the overseas game. We And that's a, that's almost like a kind of a second draft <laughs> almost for labor is that is that initial fab run before the season starts because guys will get hurt. Uh, 
throughout spring training. Uh, Kode Senga, obviously just got just got hurt and was unfortunately drafted early in this league. Um, so they're cutting cutting a late round pick in labor is not really the end of the world because so much is going to change and uh, there will be new jobs opening up just from spring training, whoever wins those spring training battles and and we'll have the opportunity in that first fab period to, uh, to adjust and go from there. Well, as I said, it seemed like a pretty decent measured gamble. Did you hear any news about Matt McLean being injured? Yeah, that came out. Uh, yes. So Matt McLean has, I guess, tweet his oblique, the same, I believe the same oblique that ended Matt McLean's season in 2023. And that news came out the day of, the labor draft. And so that night, Matt McLean fell quite a bit. Matt McLean went, I believe, in the late seventh round. Yes, uh, Mike Gianella, baseball prospectus, took Matt McLean at the end of the seventh round in the 15-team league. That's like three, two or three rounds later than Matt McLean's been going. So um, Mike is obviously taking, I don't even want to say it's a risk. It's It sounds like a minor uh, thing. At least the team's playing it that way, which, you know, <laughs> Can we take them at face value? I I don't know. I mean, it's 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 you're a Reds fan, so maybe you uh, maybe you have more more intel on how truthful they may be with injuries. But I felt like at this point, you still got a, over a full month to recover, and so it, it felt like Matt McLean was a pretty good pretty good buy. I remember this time last year in labor, um, Felix Bautista was was injured, had a shoulder injury in you know heading into the draft. And yes, he eventually did get hurt, but uh, Jose ba or Felix Bautista went uh, went very late in labor last year, and and that 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 paid off. So there could be there is a little bit of like an injury overreaction discount potentially at play in some of these early drafts too, because we're so we're itching for player news. Everyone's just kind of overanalyzing every little tweak and strain and that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes I think we overreact, and and I think Mike uh, Gianella took advantage of that with Matt McLean. I wondered about the LED LaCruz pick in the second round. Ariel and I talked about that. Uh, I think he he said that uh, LED LaCruz was his his uh, bane for the early rounds among hitters because he, he's going in the second round and that just doesn't work. And I, I thought that, well, now that McLean might be on the shelf, that maybe reduces the playing time risk for LED LaCruz considering the Reds have what, 16 infielders that they can play on a, on a regular basis? So, yeah, I, I don't know about that. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And, Ryan, how long have you been writing that column? I have been writing the speculator since, I believe, 2018. So this is my, like, seventh year doing it, which sounds crazy to talk that out. Felt like I just started it. And... That used to be Ray Murphy's gig until he ended up running the whole show. So obviously it's a fairly high profile assignment. Uh, what had you done at the site before you took on the speculator? How'd you build up to it? Yeah, so I, um, yes, this this was Ray's, the speculator was, was Ray Murphy's baby. I believe he started it from scratch and wrote it for uh, like 10 years, if not more, uh, before deciding to hand it off to me, which was which was pretty flattering. Um, but yes, worked my way up. I started with Baseball HQ in 2012. I still remember getting the, uh, I was a subscriber before uh, before I was a writer to the site. I uh, saw the Help Wanted shingle and 
submitted a writing sample. Did not did not submit the famous Ichiro Suzuki writing sample, uh, Patrick, that you uh, tend to talk about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think mine was like an Albert Pujols and Rick Porcello type type way, writing way to sample. take chances. Uh, Albert yeah, Pujols, yeah. pretty good player. Yeah, exactly. Albert Pujols will be good, and that. No. Um, yeah, it was a pretty stringent hiring process. Ron was still running the show back then. So yeah, started in 2012 and just kind of, I've written, my first assignment was a, it was called the series matchups. I don't know if you remember those. This was before we had daily matchups. We would write up a a preview of every kind of three, four game series a couple of times a week. So I started with that. um, And then over the the years, just kind of hopped around, did some daily matchups, wrote the playing time tomorrow, NL West column for a few years there, wrote facts and flukes, for quite a while uh still i mean that's that's one of my favorite columns to to read and write um did that for a while and then now it's now it's now it's just just the speculator for now i will uh i will ramp up the in-season fab column the market pulse column once the season starts but uh but yeah for now it's just the speculator and it's it's yeah i've been kind of working my way up to that point for yeah 12 years now uh, are you doing anything in the back office operations? Uh, not too much. I do. I do run the social media accounts for um, for Baseball HQ. So I, I I subject myself to Twitter there. Um, outside of that, did have done. We had a pretty good hand in testing of the new website in, over the last few months, which has obviously been released. And you talked with Ray and Brent about that uh, last week's show. Um, did 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 a good number of kind of back testing um, as much as we could at that point. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's social media, a few live streams and, uh, the speculator column for me for the off season. And you have a podcast as well. I do. I do. I probably should have, you know, this is me being a terrible marketer, but yes, I have, uh, kind of branched out, uh, my, my first ever kind of non-baseball HQ thing in the industry is, is starting a podcast with my friend, uh, uh Brian Bubba Entrican. It's called Bubba in the bloom. We, we put it out every, uh, we record every Tuesday and Thursday night. We're both West Coasters with little kids. Um, so we uh, put the kids down and, and, and record late night, Tuesday, Thursday. And those episodes uh, hit on uh, Wednesday and Friday. Been doing that for about two years now. And that's, that's just a ton of fun. It's just kind of hanging out, talking with a friend. And uh, we've picked up a little bit of steam on the podcast this year. And it's been fun to have kind of a, a small but loyal group of listeners um, taking our stuff. So if anyone, of course, after your after your after you consume the Baseball HQ Radio Friday Expert Edition, if you want to check out the Bubba in the Bloom podcast, uh, we greatly appreciate it. The Onion had a headline, I don't know, a year or so ago, and and the gist of it was like some guy had been on some other guy's podcast, and that meant that everybody in the world had been on everybody else in the world's podcast. I thought it was pretty funny because in this business, man, uh, I, when I started in 2006 doing baseball HQ radio, I think this was the only fantasy baseball podcast there was. And, uh, I've talked about it here on the show. It was very, very low grade technical operation at the start and it got better with time, but gosh, now it is, it's gotta be hundreds now when you go to, uh, Spotify and look up fantasy baseball, you get page after page after page. I know. And, um, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, the, the more voices that, that have the opportunity to get out there, I, I think the better. Um, uh, but as a, uh, I do wonder as a consumer, it's just like, I keep hearing, I only have, you know, 24 hours a day. I need to sleep. I need to work. 
I, you know, maybe I have a family. Uh, how am I supposed to listen to 15 different podcasts? The, the barrier of entry now is I'm sure I don't know, you know, back in the day when you started this up, I'm sure it was much more challenging. Now you can start a podcast, you know, get a StreamYard account or, or whatever, and, and you can link your YouTube to it and you're off and running. So um, it has created an explosion of podcasts and YouTube shows and all that stuff the last uh, the last few years. I think I think COVID helped with that a lot too in terms of just people being home wanting to kind of start something new. Um, kind of noticed that as well. So a lot of lot of lot of stuff out there. Yep, there certainly is. So the speculator column uh, we basically say that it's uh, the 20 the players who have a 20% chance of doing X Y or Z. Uh, rather than the 80% chance that we're normally aiming for. So you're on the opposite side of the HQ mantra, if you will. So how do you pick out the players for the column and where do the ideas come from? Yeah, I try to uh, put a disclaimer at the bottom of every speculator. Try to try to play defense from the comment section saying this is this is a 20% play and sometimes even less when we talk about uh, some of these some of these players in my most recent columns but it's more just yeah opening your eyes to everyone just kind of looks at a projection this time of year and and we think that's what the player is going to do uh is going to hit 30 home runs with 82 rbi uh when really that's just kind of the the average the 50th percentile so i'm trying to trying to see what the 80th percentile looks like sometimes the other way around you know what if a couple things go bad and uh what does the outlook look for that player um to kind of answer your question, how I come up with players, um, I don't. I, I come up with the concepts first, and the players just kind of bubble up. So I'm a, I'm a very kind of data oriented person. Shocker, fantasy baseball writer. Um, I've got a series of of different kind of filters and things I look at um, that I think to slice and dice the player pool and the ADPs and things like that to uh, just kind of bubble up certain certain players that 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 show up so f- f- i mean just for example like the the last column i did i tried to predict 2025's top adp risers and to do that i looked at the adp risers from last year um you know the, the guys who are more expensive in drafts this time this year compared to last year and i got a list of like 10 names and so i use those names to kind of build characteristics for who's going to be rising next season, which is uh, obviously of more importance to to the reader. So it's more just um, thinking of the concepts, slicing and dicing the data and running some running some queries on that. And the, the player names themselves kind of just bubble up that way. Well, when you went searching for these rising stars, you started with finding the next C.J. Abrams. And he's an example of what you said, 226 ADP last season, 41 this year. So you're looking ahead, and one of the players you found with some pretty interesting parallels to C.J. Abrams was Arizona shortstop Jordan Lawler. Well, what's the connection there? Yeah, so the the, the connection is, and when I, when I, what I did in this article is I first kind of just looked at C.J. Abrams himself and, like, what, what, is, what did that profile look like this time last year? And what I saw with Abrams was he was in way over his head in the majors, was called up in his age 21 season so it's like what do you really expect to happen when when a 20 when a 21 year old makes his debut against MLB pitching uh predictably he struggled struggled but um as we know and longtime readers of the forecaster and HQ there's that that A-Rod 10 step path to prospect start and the the prospect growth isn't linear uh CJ Abrams had a ton of prospect pedigree I think he was like a top 5 prospect on our HQ 100 so I just took those kind of young 
MLB struggles, yet a very highly regarded prospect. Um, and and kind of searched this year's player pool for those comps. And yeah, Jordan Lawler uh, was like literally kind of a, a carbon copy of Abrams, a to another top five prospect. He is, I believe, 22 years old. So you've got that. And he did struggle, Lawler did, in kind of partial playing time. Sorry, he's 21 years old. Jeez. So Jordan Lawler debuted as a 20-year-old last year. Um, again, what do you expect to happen? And so, um, like, I just – Lawler may not have playing time to start the season. Geraldo Perdomo probably is the guy at shortstop for Arizona. But, like, it wouldn't be crazy at all for Lawler to basically do – what CJ Abrams did his second year in the majors as a, you know, 21, 22 year old, just learning, learning the ropes um, has all the talent in the world and very similar to Abrams in terms of like a double plus base dealer. Um, so Lawler was my, uh, Lawler was my comp there. He's going outside the top 350 in drafts. And so like, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's fine. But I just wanted to open the reader's eyes to that, you know, 80th, again, 80th percentile outcome of, of a top prospect who struggled at first and now, you know, gets his gets his feet on, gets his sea legs and that sort of thing in year two and and takes off. And it's not like Geraldo Perdomo's like, you know, uh, or anything. So <laughs> no, no, it, it wouldn't take a great deal of imagination to see uh, Lawler maybe starting off hot in AAA and Perdomo struggling. And maybe that's the way they go. Uh, you had three other rookies in that cluster. And then you went on to search for the next Nolan Jones. This is a guy he's jumped 425 slots from last year to this year. He's going in the second, third rounds. I've seen uh, really early one of his parallels is a guy I seem to remember as one of last year's hot commodities, uh, Chicago first baseman Matt Mervis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if, if you recall this time last year in a first pitch Arizona uh, last year, or I guess 2022 first pitch Arizona, Matt Mervis was the talk of the conference. And similar to what we saw with, uh, like with, with Nolan Jones, that what I was looking at for Jones is just like a little bit more of an older prospect compared to like an Abrams with high minors experience and going outside the top 30 in our HQ 100 and Mervis checked Mervis checked those boxes uh, pretty well. We all know how bad Mervis was when he finally got his much awaited call up last season with Chicago, just three homers at 242 on base percentage and 99 plate appearances. Like that's, that's pretty rough. Um, but the triple A numbers were, were still strong. And again, going back to that, like, you know, prospect growth isn't linear type of uh, type of theory. Like this is still the same Matt Mervis that everyone was going gaga over this time last year. And so like, no, Mervis isn't going to have the stolen base upside of what we saw from Nolan Jones, who I believe stole 20 bags last season. But it's the same kind of thing of like just a little bit more seasoned prospect, someone who the shine might be off a little bit. I, I think Jones was actually off our HQ 100. Uh, before he was called up, and uh, but the but the but the skill is still there, the pedigree is still there, and they're I think still young enough to uh, to to turn things around when the market has basically given up on someone like Matt Mervis. And speaking of Cubs, you wrapped up the column by finding the next Cody Bellinger. Of course, <laughs> his story was that he struggled for a couple of years, then really had a tremendous rebound last year, and he's climbed by, up into the first round, uh, early second round in drafts this year. And when you were looking, you found a couple of veterans, including the as yet unsigned Tim Anderson. I'm surprised you didn't grab him yourself in your draft. Uh, 
had one homer last year, 500 plus plate appearances, one home run, and he batted 245 after being a batting champion and being over, pretty steadily over 300. So what's your take on a big rebound for Anderson in 2024? Yeah, Tim Anderson went in the 19th round of labor, and you're right. I did not take Tim Anderson, but uh, try to try to put my money where my mouth is and back these things up. But um, anyway, I mean, with, so with the, the the kind of dichotomy with finding the next Nolan Jones and C.J. Abrams is didn't want to go the prospect route for this third kind of comp. Bellinger was your someone who's you know your MLB veteran who's been great before, just had a couple of down season or in Bellinger's case, a couple of down seasons. Um, but you know, so, 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 some bearded guy, we know that says, once you display a skill, you, you own it, um, applies here, especially when you're like 30 years old. And so for Tim Anderson, I, I, I doubled down on my speculator disclaimer. I said, this is probably a 5% play <laughs> as opposed to a 20% play just because he was so bad last year. But I think we forget that, uh, Tim Anderson hit over 300 every season from 2019 through 2022. He's had basically 15 plus homers and steals every season, uh, 2017, 18, 19, and 2021. And he's still just 30 years old. So like, yes, my one kind of qualm with once you display a skill, you own it. If you're like 38, 39 years old, you probably don't own that skill anymore. Uh, but, but Tim Anderson, he's still just 30. Um, I wrote this at the time. Uh, Anderson had an ADP over 400. So again, your acquisition cost is, is minimal. If it doesn't work out, that's fine. At the time he was a free agent, but, uh, breaking news, he just signed with the Miami Marlins for a, a one year, $5 million contract. And on that team, I think Tim Anderson's going to play, He'll play. every day. I mean, there is like, it's like John birdie going against, uh, going against Tim Anderson. That's the competition there. So I think that even further bolsters my case for uh, taking someone who's young enough to turn things around, who has a long track record in Anderson's case of, of success. And it's just, tr yeah, truly coming off a brutal year, but uh, I don't, you know, I'm speculating that, uh, that there's still something there. In your column last week, it was called recency bias rebounds for 2024. You looked at batters who had pretty dismal years last season and have fallen victim to that in this season. Their ADPs have dropped sometimes several rounds. So how did you set the parameters to choose the guys that you thought might rebound? Yeah, I, I've run this type of concept the last few years in the, in the speculator. And one of my, I don't know, one of my disagreements with a lot of the analysis out there that we see is we focus on last season so much. Um, I think uh, we, as like the just the collective industry and analysis, I, I think we tend to lose sight of. I mean, this is a great transition from Tim Anderson of of, of track record in previous years. And so, what I wanted to do with uh, with this column is, I took yeah the, the the guys who have fallen the furthest in in ADP from 2023 to 2024, and similar to what I was talking about earlier, it's more of the concept I'm developing, and then the players just just kind of come from there. And and the thought is that. These guys, since they dropped so much in the market entering 2024, they were obviously, you know, pretty good or pretty highly regarded this time last season. And it's only been one year. A lot of these guys are still the same guy and uh, came up with a bunch of names that uh, that I that I that I listed in the column. And then I, I bold the ones that I actually write about and provide commentary in the actual article itself. 
So basically you're giving mulligans for 2023 to players you think deserve them. And one of them was Philadelphia catcher JT Real Muto. And you did put your money where your mouth was on this one. You took him in the fifth round in that labor draft. I did. I did. I finally, yeah. Thanks for calling that out. I, uh, appreciate that one. I did, I did, I did back up JTR in labor in the fifth, um, in the forecaster, we, we ended real Muto's, uh, box with the, the phrase, let regression lead to profit and, uh, channeling my inner Todd Zola here. Um, uh, but regression works both ways. Regression is, we often think of it right. as, as a negative connotation. Always negative. Yeah. Yep. In Ramuto's case, it's uh, I think it's positive regression. Ramuto's uh, ADP has dropped from 27 this time last year to 83. Struck out a little bit more um, in, uh, in in last season, but again, the track record of of a decent batting average with with power and speed is uh, is really attractive to me. And and honestly, in this case, like. I don't even know if Ramuto deserves to fall that much. I think the market's maybe just saying this is a, I think, 32, 33-year-old catcher. And, uh, you know, you're going to start to see that decline maybe in stolen bases. But I'm, I'm taking the other route and saying that this is still someone who has really been consistently one of the top two catchers uh, for the last, I don't know, whatever years I can remember. And Ramuto's being drafted uh, much later than what we saw last year. I wonder if there's a certain amount of groupthink that goes on in these kinds of situations where kind of everybody's reading everybody else's writing and everybody's trying to predict from everybody else and their and their own thinking. And everybody seems to agree. It's Adley Rutschman first, probably going to go in the fourth round and maybe be worth it. And then you've got this kind of little second tier with Real Muto and Contreras and maybe Will Smith of the Dodgers. And wherever Rutschman goes, that's when the, that's when the catcher run starts. And in your draft, it was in the fourth round. And, um, I don't know if Will Smith went ahead of, of your pick of Rio Muto or behind. He did. He went, he went actually, Will Smith went three picks before, uh, JT. Yeah. And, and that's where it starts. So all, all of that kind of stuff makes me think that whenever you're looking at ADP analysis, you always have to be cognizant of the fact that crazy things can happen at drafts where for some reason, well, like you said, you had players at 14 and 15, four closers fly off the board in the space of four picks. And all of a sudden your plan might've been, well, I'll, I'll, I'll grab a closer in the sixth. And then you think, oh my goodness, this isn't going to work because there, these four things, it may not panic me, but it's going to panic somebody. And when the panic starts, you know, it's like the lemmings over the cliff kind of situation. And so you have to respond to it, whether you think it's value or not. Yeah, agreed. And I, th- I think we also, it, it, it's a really good point. It's almost like written in scripture that this is the order of, you know, the catchers, the closers and that sort of thing. And I think we get so locked into that. Uh, the, you know, everyone that reads all this, all, you know, all the content listens to podcasts and that sort of thing. It's almost like it's, it's burned into our, our brain that, uh, Adley's the number one catcher and, you know, Wilson Contreras is the number 10 catcher. And I think, you know, one of the things, again, I try to do with the speculator is let, let's try and get out of that mindset of just getting so like locked into where these guys are and embrace the, uh, again, kind of maybe channeling my inner Ron Chandler here, embrace that imprecision of trying to project human players. Wilson Contreras, for example, could be the number three catcher by the end of the season. We, we have no idea. 
but we like to think we do at this point in, in draft season. We've all done our research. We've all done our prep. And we think that's how it's going to go. And it's, it's, it's just not. <laughs> Last year's seemingly poor performance by infielder Ahmed Rosario really crushed his ADP more than 200 picks down this year. But you say that the drop represents a pretty significant bargain. I got him in a snake draft uh, at pick 223. And then he signed, which is probably good news. He signed with Tampa Bay, which might not be as good a news as it could have been. But what's everybody missing on Ahmed Rosario? I, I I think it's the it's two things. It it's the at the time, right? Was still a free agent and it was what we saw from Ahmed Rosario last year. Again, we focus on last year so much. Rosario, he was admittedly bad. Uh two sixty-six batting average, six homers, sixteen steals, and five hundred fifty of plate appearances. Not not quite Tim Anderson bad, but but still but still bad. And again, we, we, we forget that Ahmed Rosario, each of the previous three full seasons, was a 280 hitter with uh, double-digit home runs with uh, 18, 13, and 18 stolen bases in those seasons. So it's, it's just the, it's the previous track record that I think Rosario is young enough. This is just Ahmed Rosario's age 28 season. He feels much older than that. Um, age 28, like why can't Ahmed Rosario – rebound from one bad year and so i don't know i get like since then like you said he, he signed with the rays which i'm i'm lukewarm on the rays they they start their their stars every day uh they have been the last few years but i do think ahmed rosario might be in a platoon at least to start the season and it might be the platoon that you don't want against left-handed pitchers but we've got um, rosario like 45 percent playing time i kind of wish the marlins signed rosario instead of Tim Anderson. Like you kind of want him to sign on a on a bad team which would give him the chance to play every day. I don't I don't think that's going to happen with the Rays at least until injuries hit, which inevitably will happen, but for now um would have liked to seen him sign with uh, a team that gave him a little bit more of a playing time leash. And of course Tampa Bay is not exactly locked down at shortstop either. I mean they have options True. as we know, but none of those options again is going to make anybody forget Cal Ripken. Uh, on the pitching side, you identified a couple of former elite starters, really. Carlos Rodon and Shane Bieber. Let's start with Rodon. Uh, uh, obviously, terrible first year last year with the Yankees, but you say his drop of 100 picks or more is just out of kilter. It was a terrible season, but he had multiple injuries. Where are you playing Rodon this season? The drop was from 50 to 150 in ADP. So 100 point drop, 100 pick drop from Rodon. It's at the point now in a draft where, at least personally for me, I'm much more willing to embrace some injury risk. And and yes, ignore the fact that again, I took Tyler Glass now in the fourth round of labor two days ago. <laughs> but uh, I just think that the the price for Rodon is is obviously much cheaper than we saw last year. And we forget, or maybe we don't forget, but I would just like to remind folks that from in 2021 and 2022 across those two seasons. Uh, Rodon had a 267 ERA, a one whip that was fifth best among all starting pitchers, and the strikeouts were just elite. A 20 what K to walk, uh, strikeout minus walk rate uh, for Rodon, which is like my favorite real skill stat to look at for pitchers, was 27 percent. League average on that is in the teens. So um, we forget that Carlos Rodon was like a top five pitcher in baseball in 21 and 22. The other thing that we've uh, seen with Rodon at least so far 
is the velocity's back so far in spring training. He was throwing in the low 90s this time last year, and the warning bells were going off, rightly so. Rodon is back up in the upper 90s. Who knows if that uh, will continue throughout the season, but it's certainly not a bad sign that Carlos Rodon might uh, be healthy in year two in the Bronx. And Shane Bieber's down more than 120 picks after a 2023 with a 380 ERA, 123 whip. Not great decimals, a 13% strikeout minus walk rate, not a great strikeout minus walk rate, and a Baseball HQ dollar valuation for his season of zero. And you say in the Speculator article that there's a magic word here for Shane Bieber. Yeah, I don't know, you know, if you're if you're sitting on the couch watching TV, you see those jewelry commercials. It's like everyone's happy you buy this expensive bracelet and 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 they go he went to Jared. Uh the the the, the equivalent to that in in fantasy baseball is he went to driveline. And 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 Shane Bieber went to driveline uh which for well for folks that don't know what driveline is, it's it's a kind of a it's a private pitching lab basically, and has has been credited with the turnaround for several players the last few seasons. Very analytical, looking at biomechanics and shape, pitch shapes and all that stuff um, is, is what Driveline specializes in. And so Shane Beamer has been training, Shane Beamer, Shane Bieber has been training at Driveline and Driveline posted some stats uh, when Bieber was training with them that the velocity, the fastball velocity is back up to 93.2 which isn't going to knock your socks off. It's not a Carlos Rodon type fastball velocity, but there's a big difference between a 90 mile an hour fastball from Shane Bieber and a 92, 93 mile an hour fastball from Shane Bieber. So um, again, taking into account the, the injury risk here, um, the ADP from Bieber has dropped from 56 this time last year to 177. So going even later than Carlos Rodon, if you believe that Shane Bieber is, is healthy again, um, this is this is a buying opportunity. I mean, Shane Bieber from 2019 to 2022 had a 291 ERA, a 105 WHIP. Like that's that's really good stuff. Shane Bieber to me feels like he's 35, 34 years old. He's just 29. So you know, certainly his career is not even. I, I wouldn't even say on the downslope. Um, if Shane Bieber is healthy and can sustain that 92, 93 mile an hour fastball velocity that he posted at Driveline. We could see uh, we could see quite the rebound. How many Tommy John surgeries has he had? <laughs> uh, I know one. I, I, I'm not sure if he's a if he's a double dipper or not. No, I'm not either. Good question. Yeah, I guess. But well, we'll see. At uh, at 15th round or 14th round, you know, there are worse things you can do than take a flyer on a former Cy Young caliber guy. You know, so. Yep. If the rebound is there, it's going to be a really, really good rebound. As you could say the same thing with Carlos Rodon as well. Uh, Ryan, lots of fun as always. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Uh, sure thing. So every Wednesday on BaseballHQ.com, this, uh, the weekly speculator column hits the site. Again, during the season, I'll be I'll be running that uh, that weekly Market Pulse Fab preview column that will come out every Sunday uh, to get you ready for for Fab for that week. And I am on the Bubba in the Bloom podcast. Again, episodes Wednesday and Friday every week and on Twitter at RyanBHQ. And I post all the links to things that I do uh, from there. So I uh, really appreciate coming on the show. Like I said, it's been, uh, it's been a while, but it's, it's good to be back with you, PD. Well, it was great to have you. Are you doing Bloom boards this year on Twitter? 
A little bit. Uh, not not as much as in years past. Um, kind of the, the admittedly the the podcast is taking a little bit more of my my bandwidth with uh, a full-time job and two kids at home. So haven't done as many bloom boards. I, I pop a few every now and then um, I've done maybe 10 of them this year. So uh, there's, they're still out there. If you, if you lurk. It's just one of those things where you're kind of noodling around in Excel or noodling around at Statcast. And you go, Hey, look at that. You don't want to make a whole article out of it, but it'll make a board. Exactly. And actually I, that used to be kind of how my, I, I would be doing doing research for a facts and flukes column or a speculator column. And I'd come up with this kind of cool list that I, maybe I wouldn't post in the article, but I don't want, you know, that wasted time to go. So I'll just, I'll post it on Twitter and do a couple quick bullet points about some guys and it, it picked up some steam. So I, you know, I enjoy it. Yeah. It's a nice little uh, touch for Twitter users to get a little bite-sized piece of what is still, even though it's short, it's pretty solid analysis. It makes a pretty solid point. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to think the analysis is solid at times, but uh, but yeah, I, I do keep the good stuff uh, for, for our subscribers, so please check out The Speculator if, uh, if you haven't yet. Thanks again, Ryan. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Ryan Bloomfield is The Speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, and the newest. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. This week, why don't you check out the Org Reports archive, top prospects on all 30 teams with commentaries and ratings, and you can review the two-part Baseball HQ Prospects Roundtable with our entire scouting team debating the prospects who made the top 100. Comprehensive prospect coverage is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Now, I've mentioned a couple of things on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and of course, they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse column, long shot suggestions in the Speculator, player injury analysis in the Big Hurt, and team injury reports. We have gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats. And there's groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections. They're updated every day in season, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at spring training prospects to watch is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. 
It may not officially be spring, but the snow has started to melt in much of the northeast and upper Midwest, and the Dodgers are already putting the hurt on the Padres, scoring eight runs in their first inning of Cactus League play. Over the next month, the minor league minute will take a close look at a wide variety of prospects in camp this spring. In particular, we'll look at breakout performances, injuries, and struggles, all with the goal of identifying prospects to target for draft season and beyond. We kick off our coverage this week by looking at some dark horse candidates to break camp with the big league clubs, as well as some elite prospects who might end up starting the year in the minors. One dark horse candidate worth watching this spring is the Tigers' Justin Henry Malloy. Malloy, who came over from the Braves in the Joe Jimenez trade, is an on-base machine with impressive power. After three minor league seasons, Malloy owned an impressive 417 on-base percentage and in 2023 smoked a career-best 23 home runs. The one thing keeping Malloy from making his MLB debut last year is below-average defense both at third base and in the outfield. However, the retirement of Miguel Cabrera creates a potential opening for Malloy, but he will need a rake this spring to force his way into the Tigers' opening day plans. Another name to keep an eye on is the Cardinals' Thomas Sagasse, who eked into our preseason top 100 list, but in general is still an under-the-radar prospect. Much like Malloy, Sagasse's best defensive position is at the plate. After three professional seasons, Sagasse owns a 298-369-508 slash line. As of now, he's a player without a defensive home or a clear path to regular at-bats, but the Cardinals struggled to stay healthy and score runs all of last year, and Sagasi has a chance to win a bench role with a strong spring. Others to keep an eye on include the Braves' Hurston Waldrop, who was lights out in his limited pro debut, the Padres starter Drew Thorpe, who came over in the Juan Soto trade, Pirates right-handed pitcher Jared Jones, who punched out 146 and 126 innings pitch between double and triple A, and the Padres shortstop Jackson Merrill, who will be seeing time in the outfield this spring. On the flip side, there are several prospects who right now are penciled in as opening day starters, but will have work to do this spring. At the top of that list is Tigers second baseman Colt Keith. The Tigers desperately need Keith to succeed right away after assigning him to a long-term extension during the offseason but Keith has yet to make his MLB debut, largely because of his below-average defense. The Tigers moved him from third base to an easier defensive spot at second base, but the club just has to look at the slow start of Spencer Torkelson to be reminded that things don't always click right away. Others to watch this spring include the Cardinals' Mason Wynn and the Diamondbacks' Jordan Lawler. Arizona GM Mike Hazen has already stated that Lawler, who went 4-for-31 in his MLB debut last year, will need to put together more consistent at-bats during regular playing time in the desert. Wynn showed similar issues in an even larger sample size, hitting just 172 with 4 extra base hits and 122 at-bats last year. Both Wynn and Lawler are above-average defenders, but a slow start could have them back at AAA come opening day. With a full slate of spring training games on tap over the next week, we'll be watching these spring battles along with others so that you're ready to pounce or pass on draft day. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Scouting Team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available late in your league's draft and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Yankees catcher Austin Wells is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a power-first backstop with a short uppercut swing geared toward hard contact with 25-plus home run potential, according to Baseball HQ's 2024 minor league baseball analyst 
In fact, in a recent January 7th MLB pipeline poll of baseball executives from all 30 teams, 24-year-old New York Yankees catcher Austin Wells was viewed as a possible dark horse candidate among the executives, referencing Sports Illustrated January 9th, for Rookie of the Year consideration in 2024. Impressive. Even Yankees manager Aaron Boone told The Athletic on February 18th that he's excited to see what Wells might be able to do. He's continuing to make really good strides this winter to put himself in a position to compete for a big league roster spot. And on top of that, Boone conjectured, over time he's really going to hit. Indeed, Wells is a pull approach, echoing Baseball HQ's 2024 baseball forecaster, but his power plays to all fields. Even so, Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing does not see Wells as being a top-five catcher because his aggressiveness and low on-base potential sink some of his offensive upside, as pointed out in Chris's January 1st Yankees org report on BaseballHQ.com. That's why 24-year-old New York Yankees catcher Austin Wells, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Nevertheless, here's the often overlooked potential difference maker for Austin Wells. Through 291 minor league games, three seasons, Wells has stolen 39 bases, averaging 13 steals per season as a catcher. Did you catch that? As a catcher. To put that in perspective, over the past three seasons, JT Riamuto is the only major league catcher to post an average double-digit steals each season making Riamuto the only major league catcher to average double-digit home runs and double-digit steals for each season since 2021. Though not necessarily a direct comparison, Wells has averaged double-digit home runs and double-digit steals in the minors every season since 2021 as well. Good reasons for offensive optimism. Again, quoting the Athletics' Brendan Cuddy on February 18th, the Yankees have long dreamed of 24-year-old Austin Wells' powerful swing depositing baseballs into the short right-field porch at Yankee Stadium. And maybe you should, too. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2024 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen, the ATC Projections and Valuation Systems and Fangraphs, and Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ariel is a real innovator in fantasy baseball, and he's a disciplined thinker about the game and how to play it successfully. And Ryan is an old favorite of Baseball HQ Radio, as you heard since way back in the day of the Metric Minute, and one of the sharpest analysts and players in the business. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our news analyst was Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available and not a lot else. 
Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We're taking a little time off for a visit to the Dominican Republic, so we won't be back till the Friday after next, when we have none other than Ron Chandler, the founder of BaseballHQ.com and the Babs Fantasy Baseball System, and now the author of a great new book called Fantasy Expert. We'll also have Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And in the weeks ahead, more top-notch guest experts. We'll have Jeff Zimmerman, we'll have Peter Kreutzer, we'll have Nick Pollock, and a whole bunch more, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries. Remember, that's Ron Chandler and Scott Pianowski, two Fridays from now on the next Friday Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again in a couple of weeks, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.